VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Monday, January the 23rd. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. Let's get the week off to a flying start. That can only happen if you join us live on the air to talk about whatever's on your mind. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211 or elsewhere, a toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, Captain Obvious, winter has finally arrived around the Avalon Peninsula and the meteorologists were right on the money. So right around 50 centimeters in town. See reports like out of Mount Pearl with some higher elevation, a little bit closer to 60, but... It fell, it was heavy and wet, and holy macaroni, it was quite the clean-up effort. Big thanks to my buddy Polly for helping me with the end of the driveway with the old rubble coming off the blade of the city plow. Now, of course, with the nature of the heavy, wet snow, for those who went out and drove on it before the plow was able to clean it up, it's left behind that hard-packed cement-like snow, a bit of washboard effect on some side streets, certainly on mine, but hey, there was a lot of snow to clean up. All right, here we go. So the Growlers are down in Adirondack against their arch rival. Dropped a 5 nothing decision in game one of the two-game set. Bounced back for a 6-4 victory. I don't think they've been shut off very often this season. Maybe that's the first or second time. Now off to Cincinnati for a three-game set with the Cyclones. And the Rogues open up their season in the Basketball League down at Mary Brown Center with a pair of wins over the weekend. Of course, they forged ahead during the storm on Saturday night, which compromised the number of fans in the seats, but a couple of wins to get her going. I don't know if you watch any golf. I, I do appreciate the golf. I think there's a fair argument to be made that Canadian golfer Brooke Henderson is the finest athlete in the country, if not the finest, amongst the finest athletes. So she got her 13th win on the LPGA Tour over the weekend at the Hilton Grand Vacations Tournament, the Champions, an elite field of only 29 of the best players in the world. And she led wire to wire, ended up with a four-stroke victory. So that's 13 wins. She has two majors. That's more professional golf wins than any Canadian man or woman of the past. But she's in line for a big, big year, I would think. And all right, this is a good one. I saw someone complaining that this we talk about sports too much on the show. A few minutes to ease into it. Sure, why not? It's only billions of people like sports in the world. So it was today, or this date in history, in 1981, that Mike Bossy, the legend Mike Bossy, became the second ever NHLer to score 50 goals in 50 games. And the reference to 1550 is the first 50 games of the season. Many players have done it in a 50-game body during the season, but it's 1550 generally from game one through game 50. So uh, Bossy was preceded by, of course, the Rocket, Morris Richard, did it back in 1944-45. There was only a 50-game schedule. He scored 50 goals. Following Bossy, Gretzky did it three times, Lemieux did it once, and Brett Hall did it twice. And then there's, of course, a bunch of near misses therein as well. And a couple of interesting notes. You know, with the advent of how much we rely on the keyboard, our phone, and whether it be a keyboard for your PC or your laptop or your tablet or what have you, What's really been jeopardized? I think spelling. <laughs> I think most people admit spelling, have the reliance on autocorrect has kind of taken away some people's need to be focused in on how words are properly spelled. And also handwriting. I admit freely, my handwriting is atrocious. And obviously we don't get their handwriting from our parents because both my mom and dad have beautiful handwriting. And mine is literally almost indecipherable sometimes. But today's National Handwriting Day. 
It was established back in 1977 to reflect on John Hancock's birthday, one of the most famous signatures of all time. And people still say to this day, you want to add your John Hancock to this document? So it's National Handwriting Day, Handwriting Day today, and mine, again, really bad. Uh, last one on this date in 1986. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inducted his very first class, and of course the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is in Cleveland. Get alone of the first inductees. Chuck Berry, Elvis Presley, James Brown, Ray Charles, Fats Domino, the Everly Brothers, Buddy Holly, and Jerry Lee Lewis. There you go. All right, and we should have a uh, Provincial Music Hall of Fame right here in this province, shouldn't we? I mean, all the fantastic achievements and exploits of our artists. Okay, let's keep going. So this morning at 10 a.m., and there's apparently going to be a briefing beforehand with the Premier and Minister Davis talking about what was came to bear last Friday at 12 noon when some 100 paramedics and ambulance workers being represented by the Teamsters Local 855 withdrew their services in full. Now, they had planned to go to a work-to-rule phase initially, but given what they thought were completely unfair antics on behalf of the employer, Bob Fewer, they decided that's it. So 100 of these ambulance workers or paramedics off the roads, 35 ambulances off the roads, impacting some seven different communities. I admit freely, over the weekend, that crossed my mind several times. And I'm sure if you're living in one of those communities impacted, whether it be Fogo Island or Trapassi or otherwise, you felt the same way. I mean, just imagine the worry associated with calling 911 to come up with nothing. And then even when the regional health authorities said, well, they have the ability to activate their own resources. Nobody really knew what that meant, including Hubert Daw at the Teamsters Local, including me and many. Because if we've been talking about a shortage of paramedics and the fact that they're leaving the province and having a hard time to backfill them or replace them, we didn't have any back pocket paramedics kicking around, so I'm not really sure what the RHAs were getting at on that front. So back into debate legislation that would include these private sector ambulance operators into essential services legislation, because right now they're only governed by the Labor Relations Act. A few things. So I don't think it's unfair when you hear from uh, interim leader of the PCs, David Brazel, saying that it's the inaction of government that does play a role in how we found ourselves in this circumstance. And this is completely unmanageable. Whether this is an emergency or an exceptional, exceptional situation, I'll leave it to you to provide your own adjective or descriptor. But this is a problem. I would anticipate it'll make it through the House of Assembly this morning in some form. No comments coming from the Teamsters at this moment in time until they get to read the actual wording of the legislation. But it just stands to reason that they are essential. Because if the public sector, the regional health authority ambulance operators are essential then how could any other group not represented by Eastern Health or Central Western or Labrador Grenfell, how could they be any different? They provide the exact same critically important first responder service. So we'll see what that means for the future. Uh, there is some thought, it feels like being legislated back to work. We'll see if it includes the immediacy of binding arbitration. Both sides present their case to the arbitrator and back on the roads they go. But this is an important piece of business. You know, again, it seems fair to say that because the paramedic and ambulatory service, air and ground, have been talking about these problems for years, and now we find ourselves at a full withdrawal of service. So, you know, when the government gets involved in job action, whether it be lockouts or strikes, it's always a little bit of a tricky path. But the government, in this case, subsidized the private operations there, a fewer, some $7.7 .7 million a year. Doesn't include mileage or some other patient fees, but that's a lot of government money in, so they belong in. 
this conversation. So we'll see what becomes of it. So they're heading into the House of Assembly for what they're calling an emergency debate at 10 a.m. this morning. So you want to chime in on it, we can do it. There's some conversation that there's another union representing uh, ambulance uh, operators, paramedics, that encouraged them to take on calls in some of these communities that were left without service as of noon past Friday. You know, given all the talk about replacement workers, or as some people like to call them scabs, that's an interesting turn of events. We're trying to confirm it, and away we go. And on that health care front, and of course there's no shortage to the issues we can discuss regarding health care delivery in the province or around the country, but the federal liberals are at a three-day retreat now before the parliament reopens, the House of Commons reopens. Healthcare, top of the agenda. And, of course, it's long been the case where they kind of shrug their shoulders and say it's provincial jurisdiction. The big part of the conversation regarding the federal liberals is simply the amount of money being transferred to the provinces in the form of a healthcare transfer dollar, when I think they have a bigger role to play. But anyway, we'll see what comes from that three-day retreat, cabinet shakeup, or what have you. Anyway, if that's of interest to you, you know what to do. All right, so the heavy snow absolutely played a role in some power outages on the Northeast Avalon over the weekend. The snow brought down some power lines. But, of course, it's much easier access for the folks at Newfoundland Power to go in there and do the repairs. Very much unlike some of the three sections that saw transmission lines downed since mid-December, and that's the transmission coming from Musgrave Falls, notably in the Long Range Mountains. So the worst part of all of this is they're not even really sure exactly what caused it. Is it just the case of the adverse weather conditions, ice on the power lines, or heavy snow, or is there a failure of the rigging device they call the turnbuckle? And every 20 towers, there's four of these turnbuckles down to the ground to secure the tower. These problems have persisted from the day one of the type of towers be constructed, the footing there underneath, pardon me, and then even the transmission wires initially selected. But to not even know why, I think is a reason for concern. You know, we talk about easier easier access for Newfoundland power here if it's, say, for instance, in Conception Bay South or Mount Pearl or town or wherever. But when you've got to go in tens or dozens of kilometers, have a contractor clear the road, and even a couple of weeks after some of these problems were first discovered, before they were repaired, and now we're not even really sure what we're repairing and why. So I don't think this is a subject that can go by the wayside. I think it's a massive one. And couple into it, read a bunch of stories from the national media this weekend regarding the pending expiration of the 2041 contract at the Upper Churchill. You know, Premier Fury says he's in some form prepared, and these discussions not only have already taken place, but you can feel it from Legault in Quebec. They're ramping up their preparations for these negotiations. There's been two panels struck to discuss or to evaluate what 2041 really means and some options for this province, because whether people like or trust, hate loathe the province of Quebec and or Hydro-Quebec, negotiations with them are absolutely unavoidable on this front. They have a 35% ownership stake in the Upper Churchill regardless. So we'll see what that brings. But anyway, I think that's a big one. Maybe I'm just hyper-focused on it. Because people think 2041, wow, our troubles are solved, when I'm not so sure that's the case. All right, sticking with the snow for a second. We're actually trying to uh, make some time with Chris Lacey. He's the chair of the Keynes Quest board. Of course, that's the 3,000-kilometer endurance snowmobile race up in Labrador. It's been on hiatus throughout the pandemic, but they're coming back for the first time in three years. The reason I bring it up is they're, do- they're pardon me, doing a volunteer blitz. They need a lot of volunteers, and hopefully Chris can paint a picture as to the type of volunteers they need. 
But you've got teams coming from around the world. So teams are made up of four or five people. It can cost them up to 40 grand to participate in Kane's Quest. Coming from uh, across this province, the rest of Canada, coming from Europe, another team from Finland is returning. So it's a internationally recognized event, so it brings more eyeballs on the province. So much like Targa did on the hard top, the, uh, the tarmac, the blacktop, as for the automobile race. So we'll see if we can talk to Chris, because I'm always amazed at the Kane's Quest race and its participants. Okay, speaking of, speaking of travel, of course, this one's a little bit different. And you were probably impacted by some travel woes, especially over the holiday season, and just how frustrating it has been. And for many, they're talking about, you know, the hesitance to get back in the sky, period. Get a load of this. So since the new pass air passenger protection rules uh, came into play, came into force in 2019, the quasi-judicial Canadian Transportation Agency, we'll call it the CTA from now on, they have the ability to find the airlines up to $25,000, for lack of compensation afforded to passengers. And so they got a backlog of 30,000 complaints. They've chosen to focus in trying to figure out compensation for the individual passengers inside that 30,000-person backlog. But what they have not done is levy a single fine against the airlines. I mean, we talk about enforcement and accountability. You know, if the airlines know that they're not going to be fined, then they know they can take their time and just let the backlog continue on under the control or the auspices of the CTA and not getting any fines at all. I mean, it's the crux of it, isn't it? So if you were fining them even up to the maximum of $25,000, which doesn't even sound like a lot, if they knew those fines would be forthcoming, they'd be much quicker to deal with passengers in good faith when compensation is due. But they haven't been taken to task, so consequently, we are where we are. Now, I think there's a fair debate to be had about whether or not $25,000 is enough. But what is CTA doing? I mean, you know, as they say, you got one job. And so they have indeed levied fines aimed at the airlines, totaling just over $171,000 since 2019, but none of those because of the lack of compensation flowing to passengers. Anyway, and if you have any idea about the RNC investigation into a string of fires here in the recent past... So you've heard it, the uh, ticket booth down at King George V was lit on fire. Then there was two more fires, shed fires, Empire Avenue between Rennies Mill Road and Kingsbridge Road. So they have seen a man, they think it between his 30s and 40s, fleeing the scene. If you've got any information and or some camera footage that can be of help to the RNC, let's see if we can catch this person who may indeed be an arsonist. Okay. Uh, last one. How are we doing on the phone there this morning, Dave? All right, just a very quick one before we go. We have talked about, and I might be in the minority majority, I'm not even sure, of the pathway to $10 a day daycare, which I think is an excellent idea. And again, I don't have children that need daycare, so it's not aimed at me. But up the Happy Valley Goose Bay YMCA, they're looking like it might be, hopefully temporarily, but to close their doors, there's 60, uh, 60 kid uh, placement inside their daycare offerings. There's four other opportunities up in Happy Valley Goose Bay for daycare, but there's either a two-year wait list at one and no spaces at the other, and on the base, of course, you have to have a working relationship on the base at CNA, the College of North Atlantic. You have to be a student. So this becomes a massive problem. They point directly at just the number of early childhood educators. Not only the fact they can't find an administrator at this moment, because the, whoever holds that job now, they're leaving at the end of their contract, but they've had somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 staff members come and go just in the last couple of years. 
at that particular daycare. Now, CNA did launch an early childhood education program, and it had some 15 people in it. Was it 15? Had some 15 or 13 students in it, but not only five remain. You know, some of that's about the rate of pay, the burnout, and I would think the pressures on early childhood educators. So it's fine to talk about $10 a day, which is going to be very helpful for young families and absolutely contribute to whether or not they're going to want to stay in one area or another because daycare costs can be quite punitive, more than your mortgage if you have a couple or three kids in daycare. So it's one thing to talk about that, but we've got to make sure that the rate of pay in other problems is indeed working on a pay scale adjustment for early childhood educators, and $10 a day is only going to work if we have the spaces between regulated and unregulated, urban versus rural, and all the other complexities therein. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline.vocm.com. When we come back, let's get Monday going. That only works when you call. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on line number two. Say good morning to the Mayor of Trapassi. That's Rita Pennell. Good morning, Mayor Pennell. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Teddy. Welcome to the show. Well, uh, first, I'm going to say a happy, healthy, prosperous New Year to you and your family and Dave Williams and his family, and thank you for all you did for us last year. Happy to well, do it, and Happy New Year to you and yours as well, Rita. We're only, uh, you're the only one we had to turn to, to when something happens. Uh, this morning, I'm talking about the ambulance and the ambulance strike, and I, I really... I don't really under, don't understand how Eastern Health could be essential service, and in parts of rural Newfoundland, we're not essential. I don't understand it either. So just to reiterate, the public ambulance operators working for whatever health authority, they are covered under essential services legislation. Those represented in the private sector are only managed under the Labor Relations Act, and there's huge difference between the two. So. You know, when David Brazel or others say that the inaction of the government to deal with this issue before now has been part of the problem, they're absolutely right, because if you're living in Trapassi around Fogo Island or a variety of other communities, you had no ambulance on the road since Friday at noon. So it's a problem, obviously. Uh, and uh, the government, you know, let this happen with this operator, because when they, uh, in the House of Assembly, that when they answered Loyola or Driscoll, our MHA, Dr. John Hagee said that, uh, uh, that's what the operators wanted. So they really put the need of the people over the greed of the businessman. Uh, that was totally excusable decision on the part of the government. Yeah, I mean, what the operator wants is something to consider, but what's best for the service itself, what's best for the people of the province has to be at the top of the list. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a life and death situation. I mean, somebody in Trapassi is two hours away from the hospital and they let him take one of the ambulances out of here. And when Mr. Uh, uh, Bob Pure called me last week on Tuesday, he, he told me they were only averaging three calls per week. But sure, when the ambulance leaves here, and mo most of the times they're called down the shore because the ambulance wasn't staffed down there, when the ambulance leaves here, she's gone six, seven, and eight hours because they have this unload time. And so there's other ambulances coming in. So naturally, he's losing them trips. 
Absolutely. You know, we've heard from people in your community what the long turnaround time means, and you're not alone on that front. There's a bunch of areas in the province, southwest coast comes to mind, where they've got some huge delays. Once the paramedics pick up one patient, it could be minimum of six hours before they're able to get back to their community to answer another call. So, yeah. There's sometimes hours I'm used to be gone for nine, ten hours because it'd be three and four hours out there plus the drive time. So, like, uh, we have no doctor here, and that, uh, that's another story. We had a nurse practitioner here just two days a week, and if you want to see them, you probably have to wait two to three weeks. So, uh, if you're sick, how can you wait two weeks? You can't, is the short answer. I'm curious to hear what happens in the House today, how the legislation is written, how the opposition parties and independent members react to it, any debate that takes place. I'd like to actually be sitting in on it this morning because I think this is a big one. So it's hard to know how to judge it prior, but I do think it's going to be fascinating to watch this long overdue debate uh, take place, and hopefully it can be settled in short order, and obviously it needs to be done right, because I think you're going to see a little bit of grandstanding over there today. Now, who that's going to be that's uh, trying to grab some spotlight, I guess we'll all find out at the same time. I would love to be there. <laughs> but uh, the one thing I can understand about this is if me and you are in uh, school and we do the same thing, you're trained the same as I am, and I go to work in Trapeze and you go to work in St. John's, why should you be paid more than me? We're both doing the same work. We're both trained the same. I agree. This has been something that I mean, I've been talking about in this program for a number of years based on complaints I heard directly from the paramedics, whether they work in the regional health authority or for Fuhrers or for Smiths or whoever else across the province. It just doesn't make much sense that we've got a vastly different landscape simply because you work for Eastern Health versus work for Bob Fuhrer. So it's got to get settled, and I'm glad they're attempting to do that today. And now what that's going to look like, I'm not really sure, but I appreciate the time. Anything else you want to say this morning, Mayor Pennell? No, uh, just uh, I'm not sure how it works, but if viewers have a contract and it's paid a subsidy to uh, take care of people in a certain area of the province, uh, I, I can't see how they can haul out of here in 180 days. Me neither. I appreciate the time this morning, Mayor Pennell. We'll all stay tuned to the House of Assembly today. And thank you so much. My pleasure. Take care. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number seven. Caller, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. Yes, sir. Uh, first time I've called. Welcome. So I'm a little bit nervous. Uh, I wanted to talk about the recovery center at Pleasantville. Okay. It's a detox uh, facility for... Uh, for addicts, uh, whether it be alcohol or opioids or anything like that. Um, the, the funny thing is, there's no one can get can get in. Like I know people that have been tr- trying to get in for weeks, and it's a li- it's a life or death thing for them. Yeah, one of the key things is a withdrawal maintenance program they have there. Now, I know that there's 19 beds at the recovery center, so is the inability to get in simply because every bed is full or occupied? No. So what is it? What's going on? Uh, I I know for a fact through a staff member, I'm not going to say any names, of course. Okay. There's usually as many staff as patients. 
So now I don't have, know if, if, they, if they have 19 beds. They have maybe a half a dozen patients, seven patients, maybe eight. I've been told. So I, I'm not quite sure. You know, when people call there, they say, oh, there's no beds available. I'm sorry. You have to call back. And I've lost friends who have called in, and there are beds available. <clears throat> sorry. Okay. There are beds available, but yet they get told, sorry, there's no beds available. Yeah, I suppose they're offering that gray language because if I guess if they say there's no beds, that can mean that there either is no beds or there aren't any beds that have any staff to assist that that inpatient. So I know they not only do uh, drugs and alcohol, they actually have a gambling program down there as well. And there's no doctors, I don't think, on permanent staff. I think it's uh, nurse practitioners, LPNs, social workers, uh, registered nurses. I don't think there's any doctors on staff at the recovery center full-time. But yes. I, I did not know that this was the circumstance because we've had a few conversations in the last little while here about wait time to get into, whether it be at Humberwood or the Grace Center or the Recovery Center for addiction services. So I'll yeah. zip off an email. To, uh, if I can find out today exactly how many people are there. And they help folks, I believe it's 16 years of age and over, maybe 18, but that's it, it's not for youth. So I'll see if I can get a number of exactly how many patients are there and what the, the patient-to-staff ratio is, or staff-to-patient. Yeah. I, I don't... I, I, know, I know they... If you call there, you, you guys you have, like, three options. You can call 811 if it's serious or go to eMERGE. And then there's one for detox and then one for uh, opioid detox. Um, but there's no option there for life or death. Like, no one can get from that point in time of not getting a bed to having to go out and continue using. Uh, and not to pry into your own personal business, because if you don't want to answer, please don't. So is this surrounding you personally? Are you in need of a bed, or are you speaking on behalf of someone you know, a friend or a family member, or what have you? Yes, I'm speaking on behalf of, actually, a lot of people. And just describe, you know, give us an, an individual example of what it means to finally realize that you want to go and get the help, and unable to get it, just Tell us how that's playing out for just one person that, you know, might be at the top of your pile for someone you're so concerned about. Well, just one example. Um, a really good friend of mine finally realized that he needed serious help. This was life or death. And he reached out, and he's been reaching out now for three weeks. No bed, no bed, no bed. And as a result, still using? Yes. So is he going to be alive tomorrow? I don't know. So when we're talking using, in this circumstance, are we talking about an opioid, for instance? Uh, yes. Okay. And again, personal questions are very tricky. Knowing that you have a, a group of people that you know, whether or not you consider them friends or part of your social circle, directly or indirectly, do they have the conversation about harm reduction inside their, their group, for instance, with naloxone kits on hand and things that might be the difference between life and death? 
uh, I'm not too sure. Like, I don't, I don't think I know them as a group. Like there's individuals that, you know, they don't know each other type thing, but I know them, you know, personally. Okay. But, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I've provided many naloxone kits. Uh, some may not be, uh, you know, an opiate addict. Some may be an alcoholic. Which, of course, has its own distinct treatment available. But I would, you know, having a naloxone kit is not about enabling. Having a naloxone kit is because for so many people taking some of these illicit drugs, you really don't know exactly what you're taking. And some of them can not only be highly addictive, but particularly dangerous. So yeah. having one of these kits, I think, is just a smart thing to do, whether it be as an individual recognizing your own problems and especially your friends or uh, whoever that you get high with. You know, to have that conversation, I think, can spare some tragic outcomes. What I'm going to do, caller, is I'm going to send an email to someone, not at the recovery center, but someone above them in management to see if I can get some very specific numbers because that will be helpful. Yeah. See, the issue is most of these people, they use by themselves yeah so an naloxone kit is basically useless it is there's no question but if it if you find yourself in an overdose situation it's highly unlikely you're going to be administered yeah, able to not, administer something yeah, yeah exactly. that's right i understand so i mean they keep handing these out like it's going to be a a cure but it's not going to be a cure no it's not a cure at all it's hopefully simply to reverse some of the the medical circumstance, for instance, with fentanyl or any overdose, for regardless of what the component is. Yeah, terrible stuff. Let me see what I can find out, but I'm glad that you brought it to our attention this morning because, look, I've said many times in the past, once you realize you need help, the help has got to be there. Because, so, anyway, you, I'll give you the final word. Go ahead. Okay, yeah. And something else, uh, their last resort is emergency. The treatment they get at emergency is disgusting. They don't even get treated like actual human beings. What happens? What are the stories you've heard? Go home. Sorry, we can't help you. No, we can't give you anything. Obviously, they're not going to you know, give you anything. I mean, I understand that part of it. But basically, they just have to wait for six, seven, eight hours and then get told to go home. And good luck with it all. Here's a few numbers you may call. One, the recovery center, which is, in essence, useless. Uh, you can go to the Waterford, maybe. And, of course, at this point, you have to present to uh, Sinclair's, and there's also going to be some diversion for uh, people have to present at the emergency room at the uh, Health Sciences Center. So that confusion is also not helping at all. Yeah. There's a huge gap there. There's a communication gap, and I don't think anyone's truly talking about it. I mean, you can go to detox. I know there's recovery center, uh, uh, rehab centers. We have, uh, I think, there's two or three in the province. Uh, there's emergency, but I mean, you, I mean. I heard like an eight-week wait to get into rehab. It's about four to six weeks on the average. Uh, if we're like talking Humberwood or the Gray Center or others, that's about the average wait time that someone did confirm to me last week. 
And, of course, the programs are generally usual stay. For instance, out at the Grace Center, usual stay around 28 days. They're basically three-week programs for the most part, very much unlike some other rehab opportunities on the mainland. Say the one in Ontario where a lady in uh, Labrador were trying to help out, they have 90 days worth of program. So for very serious addictions, it probably takes that and for a a lifetime to deal with the addiction. So physically, I'm guessing, you know, if you go to the recovery center, it's only, you're only there for a few days. So that's barely going to cover the physical aspect of it. But the psychological part of it may take weeks, months, like well, you said. I mean, 90, 90 days is, is probably a good option. But, I mean, you go to a rehab center, you're there for three weeks, and it's not going to do anything. Yeah, it's a physiological thing, isn't it? It's the overlap of both. Uh, I appreciate the time this morning. I wish your friends good health and hopefully the help that they need and they want, we can get them. And I will follow up with the health authority now to see if I can get some specific numbers because, you know, people need to know where they stand. And hopefully the, the conversation doesn't lead them to believe, well, I can't get any help because please do keep trying. And if we can help you, we will. So I appreciate the time this morning. I wish you and your buddies well. All right, thanks. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. You too, Mike. You know, when you you want that kind of help, I mean, that's what we're all trying to do, right, is, okay, you acknowledge it, and then we point you to where you can turn. And then if you run up against a roadblock, then what? Let's take a break. When we come back, ambulance services, oil and gas, and then whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the program. Let's go. Line number four. Kevin, you're on the air. How are you today, Patty? Not too bad, I suppose. How you doing? Oh, not bad, sir. Uh, Patty calling up about the hypocrite, Fiori, and uh, and uh, where he's going with the ambulance services and essential services and all of that. Where's the hypocrisy that you're speaking about? Well, what about all the shortage of nurses and doctors that we have? Aren't they essential? I mean, you know, we have all these casual ones. How come he hasn't gone out and mandated them to be made uh, uh, permanent so we can fix the health care system? Well, some of that's already has been decided in collective bargaining as to who can be told that they have to do X, Y, or Z. I know they dangled what I thought was a pretty attractive dollar amount in front of casual nurses that joined the permanent full-time ranks, and it looks like very few have taken it up. Well, I guess because they're not getting no time, and and ah, uh, oh, but still, I mean, we're we have a. Uh, uh, Places closed out around, uh, well, Belle Island was closed, and then we had Whitburn that was closed. Uh, aren't they essential services as well as ambulance services? Sure, but I'm uh, trying to make sure I'm following along here. But if, like, for instance, Whitburn, the emergency room out there has been closed for over six months straight. So, oh, yeah. Isn't that an essential service to, to provide for people out in that area? Okay, let's just say, for instance, uh, for argument's sake, that... Inside the hospital assembly this morning, they determined that the New Hook emergency room out of Whitburn is an essential service. Then what? Well, let's get it staffed. If they're going to have the nurses and all of this to do it, I mean, like like Brazel came out and said, I mean, they're not even in looking at the new nurses coming out of the, their courses and everything else. So, I mean, there's a lot to say. I mean, what about out in Bonavista where they had to go? and travel. I mean, it's not just on the Avalon, it's all over the province that we're having this problem, and I mean, it is an essential service. 
Yeah, but the the difference to this, just where I said, is we know that we've got these 100 ambulance operators, paramedics, dispatchers that are represented by the Teamsters Local. So when legislation, whether it includes binding arbitration or uh, legislative back to work immediately, we already know that they're there. They're, those people and their 35 ambulances are physically right there right now, as opposed to some of the absences or shortages in some of the emergency rooms or clinics that you speak of. So, you know, essential, essential services legislation doesn't create people. It just speaks to job action. So I get oh, where you're yeah. going, and it's all essential. Look, healthcare is essential. I don't think anyone can say anything other than that. Oh, I, I agree with what you're saying, but I mean, I'm saying, okay, these casual nurses. I mean, let's make them essential. You're you're going to have to work. If you're going to work this, you're going to have to work, and and staff these places. You know, you can't just come out and say, well, this is the private sector. It seems like private sector, we can go in right away and do what we want to do and, and make them essential and, and dictate to them. But when it comes to the state of our health care system, they can't do nothing about it, they're saying. So, I mean, it, it seems kind of hypocritical to me that, uh, you know, they can do it for other people, but they can't fix their own. Yeah, I don't think legislation fixes some of the other shortages that are out there. And, you know, just to think it one step further. You know what the unfortunate outcome might be if you say bring forward some dictate to casual nurses? Just think about what's happened here in the recent past. What are they going to do? They're going to say, okay, I quit. I'll just go work as a travel nurse, make more, right? I mean, we saw Central Health paid uh, about $4.2 million last year for these travel nurses. The price tag across the province, I think it was closer to $9 million. So if I'm told, well, all of a sudden, casual, not allowed. You're permanent full-time or don't let the door hit you, the door will be swinging. Because they'll just go work in the private uh, in the private sector as a travel nurse, yeah, like many have. Well, the thing is, Patty, they're fighting the debt. They're, they're going to have to work twenty-hour shifts. So, I mean, if if you can get enough of them there, you can get it down to eight and twelve-hour shifts. So, if you get enough nurses there that are hired in there, well, then you can manage to work your twelve-hour shift, and that's it. That's your day. You don't got to worry about working at doubling up on your shifts. You know, it all comes down to that you got to have enough people to cover it off, and right now they don't. No, they don't. And so, I mean, why don't they fix that and say, okay, fine, here's the thing. We can hire another 100 nurses to go across. We can open up all these places that we're after closing up, and here's your hours of work. So because we have X number of nurses now, we don't need to double up your shifts. True? True, but... <laughs> But you're you're also speaking as if we can just, you know, cast a wand and all of a sudden there's nurses. I mean, the, the, I mean, we've seen the province even go to India to try to recruit a registered nurse. So, the, and before all of this became such the crisis that it absolutely is, there were some eight or pardon me, six hundred registered nurses vacancies just in that healthcare discipline alone. So you add to it family doctors, respiratory therapists, LPNs, nurse practitioners, social workers. I mean. The gaps are enormous, and we're feeling it, and we're seeing it, and the outcomes have been obvious and very, very real. Uh, anything else you want to talk about this morning while we have you, Kevin? No, that's about it for today. Patty, you have a great one. Be safe out there, and uh, take care. You too, buddy. All the best. Okay, bye-bye. Will I take Rob here before we uh, – what do you think, Dave? Okay, Rob is pretty good. Rob is uh, – I always mean this in the best intended way. Rob Strong, oil and gas industry veteran. And expert. Rob Strong, right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Well, the oil industry internationally looking around at what might be the top five opportunities 
in the world. So you have one in Eastern Europe and Kazakhstan, a couple down in South America, uh, Suriname, and then, of course, in Africa and Namibia. Uh, I forgot to mention South America and Argentina. And one is the Ephesus. And that's a potential for a massive discovery right off our coast. Joining us, line number two is oil and gas industry expert and veteran. That's Rob Strong. Good morning, Rob. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. How are you today? I'm not too bad, I suppose. How are you doing, Rob? I'm not bad. I'm on, on demand. I've had some health issues, but I'm, uh, I'm on demand. So that's a good sign. That is a good sign, and I did hear about your health concerns, so I'm glad to hear you on the show this morning and telling us you're on demand. So that's great news. Good. Patty, yes, with respect to your lead in there on the Ephesus as well. It's quite a, quite interesting, quite exciting, because BP, as you know, is probably the, I don't know, they're active in 80 different countries, so it's a it's first-class operator. And their partners are two companies that have never been here before. One is called Hess, and the other one's called Noble Energy. And collectively, they bid 400 and, I don't know, $425 million several years ago for the rights to drill in a couple blocks of acreage in the Orphan Basin. There's four blocks, actually. And uh, lo and behold, this week, I guess the beginning of every year, some of these oil publications, uh, oilprice.com, Westwood, they all sort of look around the world and say, Where, what well should, be we, should we be watching this year? And lo and behold, can, we used to be called Cape Frills, but Ephesus shows up. So that's very encouraging. Uh, initial seismic activity, that Nalcor or Oilco, whatever, shot... Um, uh, Jim Keating talks about a billion barrels, up to five billion barrels. So, hey, pretty substantial indeed, pretty exciting. That it is. And you mentioned new entrants in. Now, I mean, BP, massive, one of the biggest players uh, in the industry, of course. They carry around a few black eyes, some very notable black eyes yeah. in the recent past. You know, Gulf of Mexico, of course, comes to, uh, comes to mind. But you talk about new entrants, and we'll just kind of bounce around here a little bit because there's – there's opportunities that we don't even know how aggressively they're being pursued. Look at a newly forged partnership in our offshore between ExxonMobil and Saudi Aramco. I mean, and they're big on a bunch of stuff, obviously, and their diversification is beyond the light, sweet, crude. You know, whether it be natural gas, whether it be hydrogen and some of the things they're working on, hear any rumbles about what Saudi Arabia's new partnership off our shores looks like? Actually, it's not Saudi, Patty, it's Qatar. Qatar, oh, that's what I meant to say. Yeah, I had Saudi Aramco in my mind. Yes, Qatar. Big, big, Pardon big me. producers of LNG in the, in the Middle East, probably the biggest in the world. No, it was quite, was quite surprising when they uh, they entered the East Coast play last year and uh, are coming back this year. So, uh, uh, as you know, several of us have been pushing for gas, or at least a, a better examination of the gas potential. I was hoping that Qatar, because their strength is in, is, is in gas, would bring that desire to see if how much gas we really have in the Jean d'Arc Basin. Uh, my buddy, the late Cabot Merton, was a big, big proponent for having a good, hard look at, at, at gas in the, in the Jean d'Arc Basin. And, of course, Leo Power and his group, uh, LNG and L, are also looking at the gas. So you're right now, and we've got to, we should be paying attention to gas as well as oil. What's the hurdle been, Rob? Uh, back years ago, you know, people would talk about building a pipeline, landing at a uh, grassy point out there around Arnold's Cove. You know, is it simply about the price per MMBTU, or is it simply waiting for a new royalty regime to be structured and well understood and accepted by industry? And, you know, from where I sit, if you're sitting on a current oil-producing field and you know that you've got gas underneath, whether you're flaring it off or you're just pu- pumping it back in to pump the oil out, what's the hurdle been, or is it simply business model? Business 
model, they, and unfortunately the federal government, uh, Trudeau and, and Wilkerson, have both sort of poo-pooed any, any gas developments on the east coast of Canada, and yet on, if you look at west coast, you look at Kitimat, they're spending $24 billion on a liquefied natural gas plant. So the political will is not there. The economics are beginning to, to, to look better and better. Price of gas has not, of course, taken off like the price of oil. I think the price of gas is, I think it's about six dollars, five dollars, six dollars a thousand, which is historically a little bit low. But price of gas, because of course what's going on in the Ukraine, the Russians' pipeline into into Western Europe, so the price of gas is going up and the demand is going up. But why we haven't, the, why we as an industry or we as a province? because I can't speak myself, but why well, collectively we, we're not doing more for gas evaluation, I really don't know. It, it's, it's a shame because people don't realize that with every barrel of oil that comes out of the ground, there's a fair bit of associated gas, whereby we only have one pure gas well in the Jean d'Arc Basin. We have the Hibernias and, and the White Roses and the Terranovas, which has massive amounts of reinjected gas or gas that they reinject, as you suggest. So it's there. Can the can the gas reinjection be replaced by water injection and therefore take, bring the gas ashore, liquefy it, and send it over to Europe? I don't know. I hope we, I hope the entrance of Qatar into the Jean d'Arc Basin indicates somewhat of an interest because we, we, we need to be looking at it. So we've been talking about the trillions of cubic feet of natural gas off the shore for years. Now, a lot of it might be in some, you know, pretty remote, tricky areas off the Labrador coast, but tons in the operating fields are there, uh, very close proximity here off the Grand you, Banks. You, you, you'd remember that from your days in the industry. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, there was tons of gas being discussed. You know, some of the, we'll call it the smaller players, the Huskies of the world, they would have loved nothing better. But it just didn't meet the price, you know, the whether it be the dollar amount of MMBTU versus the inability to get it to shore. Now, for some of the big finds in the world, they're liquefying it right there at the platform. Yes, they yeah. are. They, they're what we call sling, floating LNG facilities. Yeah. They're up and coming. So maybe one of these days we'll see one of those on the Jean d'Arc base, which therefore would eliminate the cost of the pipeline ashore. Yeah, you need Shell to come to town and fold for that one. Uh, okay. Hey, what I really want, well, a couple of things I want to talk okay. about. But uh, very quickly, White Rose. You know, people, the oil fields are out there, and the CNLOPB in January released a statement saying that, in their estimation, the amount of reserves in the White Rose field have increased. And the field will now, instead of shutting down in 2032, will now shut down in 2038. So that's six additional years. So that's six additional years of employment on the rig, employment of supply boats, employment of the helicopters, employment of supply bays, blah, 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 blah. So that, that, that's pretty significant to, to you know, be able to add six years to a NOAA field that's been producing now for about 15 yeah, that's about 200 million barrels. And I suppose that's the reason why Synovus is making any move. Because, you know, a couple of years ago, when there are audited, general, or there's audited statements and their forecasts for business in the future, not one mention of yeah. Husky operations on the East Coast. But I guess when there's a couple of hundred million extra barrels, it gives them reason to go ahead and restart it. Well, we thought Synovus's interest in Husky was just for their Western Canadian assets. Sure. Apparently not now. They'll be, they'll be in March or April beginning a major pour down there. Gentian, I'm hearing there could be up to 1,600 people working on the West White Rose. The top sides are being finished down in the U.S. Gulf. And, of course, we should see tow out to the field 2024, maybe, and first uh, first oil from the, uh, from the 
the concrete structure back to the FPSO in 2025. So that, it all helps. But, I mean, you've got 1,500, 1,600 people working for Synovus down there, Gentia, as we speak. Yeah, because... The, the big news today is, is, I don't know if you've had a chance, but Trades NL just released a... a a statement talking about the importance of the top sides for Beta Nord. From what we've seen to date, from the original framework agreement that government signed with Equinor for the Beta Nord field back in 2019, we're not seeing any topside construction at all. We're seeing some sea work done in Newfoundland. Obviously, you sort of have to do it. In, some of it you have to do it in Newfoundland because Newfoundland waters. But top sides, there's no nothing that we know of. Now we know government is negotiating with Equinor as we speak on a new package because the original original development plan talk, talked about 300 million barrels, and although we don't, we've never heard a a, a real figure from Equinor. Everybody expects seven, eight hundred million barrels, and and I do know that they're talking about 35 dollar barrel prices. So, yeah. So why do we have to, why can't we build the top sides here in Newfoundland? We did it for Husky down at Marystown. Remember, the C-Rose FPSO was a, a converted tanker. Came into Marystown, and bang, we as Newfoundland and Labrador built 12,000 tons of top sides. If you look at Terra Nova, we did a couple of modules for Terra Nova, and we did the hookup and commissioning of Bullard. So we have the capability, and goodness knows the people want to work. So... Uh, be interesting to see this campaign. I, I encourage your listeners to Google Trades NL and see their position on uh, on, on on the Beta Nord project. Because we have to get the work here. We can't uh, we can't let let be built in Korea, Japan, China, Singapore, and towed over here and installed. It's 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 ridiculous. It's, it's as Joey would say, it's our oil. Yeah, we actually had Darren King on the show last week to talk about exactly that. We have the capacity to do a lot of topsides work. We do have some restrictions with some of the big haul work and the capacity for laydown yards, but we can do all kinds of topsides work, and we've done it in the past. Uh, hear anything about timeline for business sanction coming from Equinor? Because you're right to point out, they say their business model is based on break-even at 35 bucks, and for the foreseeable future, we're going to be well in excess in that. And I'll add one second part to that question. Is I would imagine some of the restructuring of the plans and what that means for work on site and what that means for royalties is going to be what Whatever comes of the hundreds of millions of dollars in royalties that are going to be paid to developing nations under Article Third or 82 yes, yes, of yes. the UN Convention of the Law of the Sea, that nobody wants to pay it. The company doesn't want to pay it. The feds don't want to pay it. The province doesn't want to pay it. The province's position has been the federal government should pay it because they are the group that signed on to this particular article at the United Nations. Do you hear anything about that? Because I think that's going to be the boogeyman in the room. I think you're entirely correct when you talk about boogeyman around nowhere else, nowhere else that I know of in the world in any oil and gas play is any activity beyond any 200 mile limited. So this is going to make international news. The the feds, as I say, there was a modification of the law of the sea in 72, 70, whatever. Uh, feds have a right to collect up to, or at least the, the United Nations has a right collect royalty up to 7%, and that's pretty substantial. So I presume that's still under negotiation. I presume that Equinor, a company the size of there, are certainly lobbying and trying to figure out what it is. As the sanction date, I think we're looking at 2024. Uh, and, of course, Equinor is now doing a whack of studies because before they can sanction it, they want to know what it's going to cost. Yeah. So they're, they're out for what we call feed, front-end engineering and design, 
and they're asking contractors to quantify their, their best best estimate, plus or minus 30%. And then, of course, as they further refine the, the FPSO and the top side, the price will be adjusted accordingly. So uh, it's moving. It's not as fast as many of us would like, but it, it's, it's moving forward, which is a good sign. Rob, great to have you on the show this morning. I wish you well in your continued recovery. Thank you, Patty. Good talk to you as always. Always my pleasure. Take care of yourself. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Rob Strong. Industry analyst, expert, veteran. Okay, so John is in the queue. He wants to talk about text scams. Whenever people hear and see some scams that are floating around, we'd love to bring them to your attention so you don't get separated from your hard-earned money. John's next, and then you. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number five. John, you're on the air. Good morning, sir, and thank you for taking my call. Happy to do it. Thanks for calling. I'm just calling uh, basically to alert your listeners about a text I got on uh, the other day here from Canada Post, supposedly, uh, saying that basically uh, they attempted the delivery of a parcel and it needed to be rescheduled, which I obviously asked you to um, click a link and so on. And the link itself, by the way, goes to a page where you're asked to fill in your name, etc. because apparently in the way the scam works is because you weren't there for the package delivery, they're charging you like a dollar twenty-five to re-deliver, which is of course just a, a, a fish to get your credit card information and those kinds of things. And I know a lot of people are doing online shopping and a lot of seniors, uh, et cetera, may be out there uh, who may uh, sort of be on that cusp of they use texting and they use the phones, but when they see things like this, might not initially uh, think that this is a phishing kind of uh, action and click the link. And of course, because it's there from Canada Post in French and English and looks very professional, uh, it might be something that somebody might get uh, suckered into. So I just wanted to bring that to your attention that this is, uh, I did phone Canada Post to alert them of that and also will phone the uh, anti-fraud sort of agency in Canada to uh, alert them of that, but I wanted to put it out there for people in the province who uh, listen to your show and uh, get their information through this program. You know, it's they've had uh, great success, the scammers, that is, with making their emails or their texts look so legitimate. Like the emails in particular now are kind of getting at my nerves because they look so absolutely official. A lot of it looks like it's coming from your bank and it's absolutely not. So I guess the rule of thumb is unless you're expecting this type of notification, don't give them anything. No personal information, no banking information, no social insurance number. If it's a Canada Post initiated text, just disregard, call Canada Post. You know, that's yeah. the that's the uh, try to, the advice that we try to give is, you know, as opposed to thinking, well, this is my bank, call your bank. If you think this is your uh, telecom provider, just call them back. Don't take that unprovoked call or text or email at face value because more often than not, it's not real. And then the consequences are you can be, you can find yourself in a world of hurt, identity theft, or to have your bank account drained or your credit card racked up. So there's lots of big problems that come with this. Absolutely. And you mentioned about the idea of uh, whether or not you're expecting a package or a letter. And in today's world, we have quite a few things delivered to our homes through online services and so on. And uh, so it actually just was coincidental for me that I was expecting packaging to be arriving when I saw this. And then I looked at this and I said, stuff 
doesn't look right to me and I just happened to investigate it and luckily I did but I just wanted to put it out there you know uh, as you just said you know sometimes things look very professionally done on the uh, online and if you have any doubt whatsoever I uh, recommend call that particular service provider just to uh, verify that that's legitimate. You, you might that might come across in some people's ears as well the convenience of simply responding to their call will save me some time and aggravation as opposed to me hanging up getting in the queue press one for english you know press two for service look i get that and it, it is absolutely a pain in the neck to have to go through automated phone systems but it's if it costs you a, an hour or something versus it costs you two thousand dollars people will do the math and hopefully they'll do what they got to do to protect themselves because the scams are everywhere like i don't even know why i still have a landline i guess because the telecom crowd have me uh, over a box you know i have the bundled service i haul one out all of a sudden i'm paying even way more than i'm already paying which is extraordinarily high for anywhere else in the modernized world so but every time that rings it's only a scam that's it that is it's either a pollster or a scam that's for sure patty i uh, just said uh, before i go here i i just want to make a comment i was in the queue you know waiting to just mention this message and i listened to a young man on your program talk about the difficulty in getting people into uh, drug addiction services there earlier on in your program uh-huh. and i uh, just want to say to that uh, individual there that uh, you know good for him for uh, getting on the air and and again bringing this program forward to to keep it in our ears but i'll also add to you know, he spoke a lot about the uh, actual individual and, you know, and the, the health of the individual that's involved with addictions and the difficulty in that individual getting help. And I think we also need to continue the dialogue about the spiral effects of that. Like, for example, I have a personal friend here who's, uh, whose kids happen to be involved with that world. And uh, they're... The, the trauma for them as a family, they're almost feeling shame to go out in their community. So the impact on that family, the impact on the justice system, because one of those kids happened to get involved with crime to try and support his habit. You know, the, the impact uh, in this reaches so many different avenues. And uh, I applaud that young person, or I say young because uh, I'm getting older, but I applaud that person for just keeping this in the, the light here and just uh, remind your listeners, you know, this goes a lot deeper than just even the harm to the individual because it's easy for us to say, you know, well, they deserve that or this or that, which is baloney because you could make a mistake in your life and get addicted these days with the way the drugs are uh, put out there. But, you know, I put that out there as well for us to consider. You know, there are a lot of families who are going through this, trying to get help for their kids. They can't get them into this. So they feel like a public shame as if they've done something wrong, which they haven't. And then, of course, sometimes those kids, like I say, they're the ones who are breaking into a home because they need that hundred bucks. And it's a need. It's not a like, I wish I had this. They feel it's a need to go in and we'll do crime to uh, support that habit, which, you know, again, spirals us into other avenues that are connected to the uh, importance of us having proper addiction care for people available in the city. 100%. Uh, good message. Thanks for this, John. Okay. Take care. Take Have a care. nice day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And, you know, I had someone just write an email saying, well, I'm a diabetic with no coverage for my medications, but yet the government will pay for your naloxone kit. Yeah, I, I get the concern. Look, I mean, they're adding drugs to the provincial coverage over the years and maybe not everything that could or should be included to it you know outside people's own personal insurance plans that they have 
You know, and of course, if it is a, a diabetes-related medication, we are also talking life and death and serious illness uh, outcomes. But anyway, I'll throw it in because that emailer wanted me to put it out there. Let's go to line number two. Kenny, you're on the air. Kenny. Yes. You're on the air, sir. I'm calling from Bill Okay. Uh, we've been at our water since yesterday, and they're not going to have a pump uh, in about a week's time. So where's the problem? What's happening? We're not going to water. Yeah, because of what? Uh, I don't know about the main line, but we got a pump shack down here. Uh, we got no water to our houses. Okay, so we we don't know exactly what's going on, but you're told that there's going to be a while, and did you say two weeks before there's a solution? They say at least a week until they get a new pump. Okay. And uh, that's a long while, right? We've got no water. Well, it is. Is there any other option available than waiting for a replacement pump and where's it coming from like is this something that had to be ordered from uh, a long distance or do we know any more about it or simply the concern you have as a citizen that you're going to be without water for at least a week well there's a pump shack down the road on number two road yep and god knows how many down there right because it's only so much water you can take at a time okay so, don't know what to do. <laughs> well, I wouldn't be even really know where to point you for any answers beyond what you got, but I suppose we can drift off an email to the town hall to see if there's a specific issue with it or what people can anticipate or where the pump has to come from. Whatever we can do, we'll try to figure it out, Kenny. And we'll you know, talk about it on the show. They said they were going to try to get a, a pump to do off next week. Right. Like... Just uh, a week with no water. Understood. Uh, all right, then. Thank you. I'll see what I can figure out. I'll send him an email, Kenny. All right. Thanks. All the best. Yeah, a week. Uh, and, of course, again, there'll be people listening in certain parts of the province saying a week. How about 30 years? You know, again, I don't know what the most recent tally is in the number of communities in the province. And I was, you know, it's one thing if you have no water, period, being pumped. But how many boiled water advisories are still in place? And the pictures I see of basically just brown sludge coming through the taps is really extraordinary. This day and age, modern day Canada. Now, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking a little Kane's Quest. Chris Lacey, he's the chair of this 3,000-kilometer endurance race, snowmobile race that happens up in Labrador. First time in three years, of course, since the pandemic they haven't been able to do it but they're going at it but they need your help don't go away welcome back to the program let's go to line number seven say good morning to the chair of kane's quest that's chris lacy good morning chris you're on the air good morning patty how's it going great today thanks how about you i'm doing fantastic thanks so it's been a long time since the uh, snowmobiles were able to hit the labrador tundra to take on the three thousand kilometer endurance race in labrador the racers are ready to go but you still need some help yeah, that's right. Like this race takes uh, a tremendous amount of volunteer effort to put off. It's over 500, in fact, and we wouldn't be able to do it without the tremendous volunteers and the help of everybody that comes together in this time to uh, make this race happen. 
So, I mean, like everything else in this world, people will attend it and they'll see the finished product. But, of course, the effort that goes into the planning or the pre-planning, then the planning, then the execution is monumental. So, uh, you know, in the past, when I guess it's the first time in three years that you're doing it, your then cohort of volunteers, some of them have left the area, some of them are simply not interested. Why are you needing to have this volunteer blitz? Uh, so we have volunteer blitz every year. Okay. Race story, okay. but um, it's it's got to do with well, one, it helps get the hype up, get the people talking about Kane's Quest and getting all that stuff. And two, you're right, there is since the pandemic, there has been a lot of people have either re- relocated or got different uh, careers, and it's uh, time consuming to to them to not be able to give the time that they had the last race. And other t- other things, we've gotten new people come to our area, so it's also get nice to get them to. Uh, you know, I've had many people that have relocated back to Labrador and want to be part of the community and part of this race and uh, reached out to us and they found out through these volunteer blitzes and the, the Facebook campaigns and stuff we've been putting off. So, yeah, it's very helpful to do it, but we do it every year and it's just it's part of recruitment process for us for volunteers because we need so many. And like I said, it helps get the hype up for the race. So the sleds will be at the start line on March the 4th. What kind of volunteers playing what roles do you need? Uh, so... Depending on what you time of for start line, we need security, we need parking patrol, we need racer lineups, we need people to help put the trackers on the units because that's the day the trackers get installed on the sleds. We need people to help uh, coordinate all the barricades, all the st- we use scaffolding for our start and finish line stuff. The media trailer, we need media support for our um, music and uh, announcements and stuff during the start line. And uh, the, the list is pretty much endless there from that and just having everybody being able to keep the flow going because where it's only a minute between each racer starting off, it's a, it's pretty fast paced. It happens in like, well, it'll be 38 minutes with the 38 teams. And uh, it, it happens pretty fast. So it's uh, very important to have a lot of people there to keep the, the flow going smooth. Need any specialized skill sets or I guess whatever training and timing is required, you can teach them? Yeah, so we do teach. We offer training lessons. So now volunteer Recruitment will be closing in the near, I think it's either the end of this week or the beginning of next week. And then we will start allocating volunteers based on what they put in for interests and or skill sets on their application. And we will divvy them out where we see them fitting best into the into our business. But also at the same time, many of the volunteers that come back know where they want to be and know how to, how to function. But we will training. Timekeeping is a huge one for us because it has to be so precise and so consistent in order to make sure the time management of the race is correct. And it's a 24-round-the-clock operation, so we have to have volunteers there every hour of every day during the race week. That takes a lot of um, time and effort in making sure that we have the right skill sets there to be able to manage. Not that it's a complicated job, but just to make sure that you're doing it uh, the way that uh, we're expecting it to be done. Yeah, because the four or five-person teams, of which there are 37, they're depending on that accuracy for the outcome and the results. So, you know, when we talked about things like Targa over the years, it was community concerns about the noise and the speed and the risks and the dangers and stuff. But, of course, it was also broadcast internationally on speed television. You've got teams from across this province, around Canada, parts of Europe, a returning team come from Finland. Talk about the eyeballs on the province aspect of Kane's Quest. Uh, the eyeballs, to me, are, aren't as big as they should be. We have have advertised, we've put it out there, but uh, we definitely need more in the marketing and the the outreach side of things, but uh, money is tight. It's not something that um, it's 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 not something as easy and or cheap to do. Um, I do I just done a session with Ontario Snowmobile Network there for Snowmobile TV, so we are getting outreach in different parts of the province, but from a, from a international scope, I'm not sure why we don't get too much there. But we have tried in the past, and we're still trying, but. 
there's there is some restrictions there when it comes to being able to afford to be able to get out to these people. I wish people would come to us, but um, we're getting there. I mean, we have ran for many years, but uh, every year this race runs, and to your point, we got people coming from Finland and stuff. That it's it's getting out there, but uh, it I wish it was was more. But I'm satisfied with where we're going. Are there many such races like uh, Kane's Quest in other parts of the world? Uh, the only other one that I know of really that's similar is the Iron Dog, and that's out in Alaska in the United States. It is similar in event that it's uh, distance-wise, but the way that it's operated is a lot different. Like we run pretty much 24-7 with just mandatory layovers in certain spots. Other for that, you're running sometimes you could be up to 24 and 36 hours at a time without a mandatory break. You obviously take breaks if you need to for yourself, but uh, in the Iron Dog, they have set checkpoints, a midway point that they take a break for, and, and, and stuff like that. So it's a similar race, but a different aspect of how the race is ran. What does it take to win? Because, you know, it would have to be the reliability of your unit, all, all hands playing the same game at the same time. So paint us a picture of a successful recipe for success at Kane's Quest. And I guess good luck. Opinion, <laughs> I, I raced it in 2016, and in my opinion, it's uh, a lot to do with teamwork. Having the good partner, having someone that can make you through the times that are very tough is uh, is huge. Having the support at home and the support on the trail is huge. And uh, obviously, reliability of the machine is obviously number one because the mechanical failure put you out in a hurry. That's what happened to me. And um, But uh, the mental part of it for me was one of the hardest things in the world. It's it's um, You're driving for endless hours. Your mind plays tricks on you. You're starting to not trust your technology. You're starting to overthink things and scenarios and your body, you're exhausted, you're weak, you're fatigued, you're hungry. It, it, it's, it's, it's hard. It, there's a lot to it, but uh, I think the biggest thing is having a good partner that can pick you up during your downs and keep you, da- keep you down on the highs and keep you on the straight and narrow, and you can work with each other, and I think that w- is the key to success, in my opinion. So over 3,000 kilometers, what's a winning time look like? Uh, it's usually close on to three and a half days with your mandatory layovers. Like So we leave Saturday. They get Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and then Wednesday they've been coming back. So, you know, in day four, um, we're trying to lengthen the race a little bit because it's hard on our volunteers to be having that quick of a turnover time at home. Um, Some people mightn't think that that's even a case, but, like, we're not even really done with the start line, and they're already getting ready to show up on the finish line, and we still have to manage everything throughout the whole race as well. So we're trying to drag it out a little bit, um, bring back the endurance side of the Canes Quest we have some other things there we um, we got going on to help with that, but um, that's one of the things. But, but about four or five days. Well, good luck. And for the folks in the area, Labrador Mall this weekend in Lab City, if you want to put your name forward, come and learn a bit more about Kane's Quest and the role you can play. Anything else you want to say this morning, Chris? No, just check us out on the website. Keep following us on the Facebook page. Uh, we got everything going on there. And uh, if you want to sign up as a volunteer, you can do so through our, face, our website as canesquest.com and check us out and follow us. Good to have you on. Good luck. Stay in touch. Thanks, Patty. All the best. You're welcome. That's Chris Lacey. He's the chair of Kane's Quest. All right, uh, David, with indicating with the number of fingers, which line am I going to here now? And David is suggesting we go to line number one. Fine. Line number one, say good morning to the vice president of St. John's East Rotary. That's Christina Ennis. Good morning, Christina. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this Monday morning? Hanging in there. How are you doing? 
Good, good. Good. Now I know uh, you mentioned at the at the top of the show that some folks didn't didn't like to hear lots of sports things. So unfortunately, I do have some things related to sports to talk about this morning. Oh, don't worry uh, about that. You know, and I do it for a reason. You know, we talk about some of the local achievements, and you know, a lot of people do like sports as a getaway and or as one of their own personal hobbies. And there's billions of people on the planet that absolutely love sports. So you know, we got to pepper it with a bunch of different things as opposed to going straight to the World Economic Forum of Vaccines, we could just try to ease into some things and talk about things that are of interest. And some people really love it, me included. Me too, me too. So I have some good news um, related to sports and fitness and exercise this morning. Um, So first, I want to give a huge, huge thank you to a lot of your listeners who um, heard me call in about our um, bike project last summer where we were looking for used bicycles that we would um, fix up and redistribute to um, children, low-income families, and refugees. And after I called the show, um, we managed to rake in over 300 bikes Uh, last summer that went out to many Ukrainian refugees and other clients of the Association for New Canadians, uh, clients of the Gathering Place, um, a student group who were collecting bikes for folks at their high school. And uh, it was really, really awesome. So I just want to start off by saying thank you for the bike project. Happy to do it. Um, So next up, so this is a new initiative for us. So now we're doing a collection for skates. Um, and CSA-approved helmets. Um, There's a lot of new Canadians here um, over the last several years, um, and a lot of them um, have come from countries where they do skate, but did not bring their skates with them. And we've seen quite a few posts in the Ukrainian health groups over the last couple of weeks of folks looking for skates so they can go to the loop or, you know, take part in those uh, affordable recreation um, activities that the cities are providing in uh, across the province. Um, so, yeah, so we are doing a collection of skates and helmets. I know there's definitely a lot of skates kicking around in folks' garages and sheds these days. Um, maybe they haven't used them in a long time. Maybe their kids have outgrown them. And we will be absolutely happy uh, to take those off your hands um, and get them into the hands of new Canadians um, and kids and families who wouldn't otherwise be able to uh, participate in skating. Yeah, we did an equipment drive recently at the Celtics Minor Hockey Association and with great success, and there's going to be tons of people who still have uh, skates in particular in their shed or garage or the storage unit or down in the basement. Please do indeed have a look for them. And you mentioned helmets. You know, people are just want to be kind and want to help, but once your helmet has expired regarding CSA approval, it's really of no value to you or anybody else. There's a bunch of reasons why. People think, you know, it doesn't really make sense. It's a, it's a hard plastic. How all of a sudden has it degraded? It's all about the inside of the helmet and the way the foam is compacted or whatever protection is inside the helmet is no longer the way it was intended to be and its interaction between the plastic your padding and your noggin so that's why those run out of uh out of real-time life as well so have a look around and contribute where do they have to go if they would like to drop off a pair of skates or a helmet so yeah just one note on the helmets so unfortunately bicycle helmets generally um they sorry i'm i misspoke they have to be CSA approved helmets. Um, that's what the rinks uh, locally generally uh, require. Similar to if you were in a car accident and you had a car seat in your vehicle that is no longer um, usable as well. So um, we're collecting until February 10th. Um, and to get a copy of the drop off locations, you can contact us by email. Um, so at Phillips Kathy 2023. So that's P H I L L I P S E A T H Y 2023 at gmail.com. Or you can send a text message to 709-689-2443.
You better send me an email or a direct message on Twitter yeah. with that piece of info in case anyone is uh, looking for it. Please Will do. Will do. Okay. Thanks for this, Christina. Thank you so much, and you have a great day, and have a great week to all of your listeners. You too. All right, bye-bye. That's Christina Anna. She's the VP of the St. John's East Rotary. Let's take a break. A concerning email went out last week for the residents at Brookfield Estates. We'll talk about that after the break. And then, of course, the tragedy that is a slain officer in the province of Ontario. And we've seen a lot of those stories in response. Oh, Dave passed me this. I want to get it out there as well. So the signal on the light at the intersection of Wicklow Drive or Wicklow Place and Prince Philip Drive is covered in snow, so you're not going to be able to see what it is indicating. But uh, be aware, that's the circumstance. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go line number three. Colin, you're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly. How are you this morning? Not too bad for a Monday. How are you doing? Doing pretty good. Survived the big gig over the weekend. It was heavy. Absolutely. Yeah. And that heavy, that heavy uh, wet snow—it's the heart attack type of snow, you know. It's not that light, fluffy snow. Yeah, it wasn't blown around off the top of the vehicle. It was sat there like a very heavy piece of cement. But anyway, got it cleaned up. Away we go. Yep. Okay, where are we starting? I want to talk about uh, tragic case there a few weeks ago of a police officer, an OPP officer in Ontario, who was. Uh, killed in the line of duty uh, responding to a uh, what appeared to be initially a, a vehicle that had gone off the road or was uh, in some sort of mechanical trouble just a you know a, a traffic stop sort of thing and he got shot and killed and there are two people who are charged now uh, in relation to his death a man and a woman and they're charged with first degree murder and uh, it's, it's come to light the uh, media reports that uh, prior prior to this incident, he had been uh, involved in the criminal justice system on multiple occasions and had been granted uh, release on bail and uh, just prior to this uh, alleged offense now. And he had a, a lot of very serious restrictions on his uh, bail conditions. And, so, and uh, some criteria from previous court orders, inc- including a firearms prohibition. And uh, so questions are obviously being raised, uh, rightly so, is, uh, how is it that he allegedly came into possession of another firearm when he was already on a, a, court, a ban, you know, for, for a firearms prohibition? Basically because there's lots of guns out there. The, uh, the constable, just for a little additional focus on the, the slain officer, just, I think it was something like two or three hours before he was killed, he was told that he'd pass his pro- his probationary period, which I think was 10 months. Prior to that, he was a member of the military, Canadian Armed Forces. He was also, uh, I believe, a constable at the provincial legislature at King's Park or Queen's Park in Ontario. And so, yes, we'll get on to the alleged perpetrators at this moment in time. I mean, there's always going to be questions about bail and who absolutely does pose a danger to the public. You know, and you wonder how it factors in as well. The numbers of people sitting in penitentiaries who are on remand and how judges make evaluations about how to add to prison population on bail-related matters. You know, much akin to being told that there's an order of protection in place. Sometimes, and the inability to hold a firearm or to have a firearm in your possession while you're out on these bails, unless it's enforced day in and day out, which is virtually impossible, it's not what the paper's printed on, and that's how Canadians feel. 
Yeah, I think uh, a large part of that is correct. You know, uh, a lot of the uh, supervisory positions in the criminal justice system with regard to uh, people who are just charged with offences uh, or people who have been uh, convicted of offences and now are on you know, probation orders or parole or some other form of release. Uh, I, I think uh, those positions are uh, few and far between and the, the people who are in those positions are, are being stretched pretty thin. You know, they're being overworked and uh, they just can't keep up with the with the, with the caseloads that they have. But uh, it's, it's a very good point that you make is that uh, the majority of people who are uh, in prison on remand are uh, haven't been, have not been convicted of anything, right? And uh, the law still presumes you to be uh, innocent of that offense until you either plead guilty or you're found guilty at the trial. And uh, it's it's important to uh, remember, I think, that uh, the right to bail is a constitutional right guaranteed in the Charter. So you have the right to uh, not be denied reasonable bail without just uh, cause being shown. Uh, a lot of the premiers, uh, I think it was last week, it was uh, all 13 premiers, I think, sent a letter to the federal government uh, asking for, among other things, that uh, a reverse onus clause be put in uh, into effect in uh, situations like uh, just occurred in uh, in Ontario with this police officer, so that uh, people like the accused, in this case, uh, he would be taken into custody and he would have to show at a bail hearing that he should be released rather than the other way around, which is the way it usually is, is that the Crown has to show that, uh, has to show cause why you should be uh, detained. Yeah, and I, I mean, I don't think it makes anyone unreasonable to say, well, if there was a concern with how he may indeed use a firearm, then the danger would be clear and present. I don't know the circumstances of everything in that fellow's background, any crimes he's been convicted of or allegations made against him. But the questions surrounding bail, I think, are as complicated as they are fundamental. People have the right to argue, whether it be themselves or their, rep- their legal representative, for fair and timely bail. And then I just wonder how it does factor in prison populations to eventual uh, court decisions on denying or uh, or uh, accepting a certain bail amount or whatever that may be in different circumstances. Because we hear these stories a little bit too often. And the one that I think kind of weighs on my mind is orders of protection when we're talking about uh, allegations of domestic violence. Because sometimes that just makes it worse. So I think there's a lot to the bail conversation versus what is uh, fundamentally available to me based on the charter. I, I think it gets a bit more complicated. And like everything else in criminal justice, it also has a dollop of emotion, which is hard to bleed up because we're not robots. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it is the uh, high-profile high cases and, uh, you know, the alleged murder of a police officer in the line of duty, that's going to get national attention no matter where it is in the country. So it's these kinds of cases, I think, that, that drive public opinion. And a lot of times you get government reacting, uh, not necessarily in this case now, but just in general. Uh, you know, a very small number of, uh, of people or offenders are driving the, the national debate. You have a very small percentage of people, uh, you know, with very uh, high profile uh, and very tragic uh, events and, and crimes, uh, horrendous crimes being allegedly committed. This is what's, in a lot of cases, this is what's driving the uh, political agenda. And um, it, it makes, in some cases, for hard cases, make for bad law, you know? Yeah, possibly. And every time there's any story that pops up about uh, law enforcement uh, being killed in the line of duty, I was in Alberta in 2005 when four Mounties were uh, slaughtered in Merthorpe. And that, you know, 
we didn't live too far from there. We actually played some hockey in Marathorpe, but that is, that comes and enters my mind every single time we talk about interaction between the police and citizens, especially when there's a, a law enforcement officer killed because, yeah, they were lured to that place and shot to their death, and then the perpetrator killed himself, if I remember correctly. Yeah, and uh, I think, uh, you know, what we have to remember, too, is there's not only the statutory provisions in the criminal code that the courts are guided by, but the Supreme Court of Canada has weighed in uh, on numerous occasions about bail and its uh, inextricable uh, link to the presumption of innocence. And also that bail should not be used as, as a form of punishment. It's, it's, uh, you, have to re- you have to remember that someone is just charged with an offence and that uh, the Supreme Court of Canada has said that you should be released on bail, generally speaking. You should be released on bail with the least onerous conditions. So uh, when, when courts are looking at this, uh, whether it was this gentleman now who's charged with murdering the police officer or anybody else, uh, they had to follow the case law from the Supreme Court too, right? For sure. Appreciate this, Colin. Thank you. Thanks, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, the story's horrific, obviously. Uh, will I take Cindy here or take a break? Cindy has the patience. Yes. There's a meeting coming up where all residents of Brookfield Estates are encouraged to attend. Why? Cindy will tell us after this. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Cindy, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you this morning? Very well, thank you. How about you? Uh, not too happy. Are but, you a, uh, a resident at Brookfield Estates? I am. I am so I'm an owner, yes. Okay, uh, so I've, I've seen the email. It's been sent to me many, many times over the weekend. So what's going on? Oh, so you have received it before, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, apparently... Um, there's an, an urgent meeting called, as you know, uh, for Tuesday night. Now, this was sent out at 2.30 on Friday, uh, hours before a blizzard, and uh, it was called for Tuesday night coming. And there's a lot of residents, and the majority in there are senior citizens, and uh, they don't even, you know, have email or, or whatever. Just on my street alone, I spoke to 10 residents that I forwarded the message to, you know, to let them know about this meeting. They didn't know because really, by law, um, when a meeting is called, it should have been out within 10 days prior to the reason, time and, you know, date of, of the meeting. And this was sent out Friday. And as you can see, uh, our common element fees or whatever they are are gone up from $115 a month to $455 a month or a one-time payment of $2,600 to be paid in full by June and then $155 a month after but then again this is going to go on as you know insurance goes on year after year after year and uh, they're saying that it's due to the fire that was there in September, I think it was, on uh, number 25 Leicester Street. But, Patty, what I don't understand is that uh, we're all, we had to have our, you know, our own personal insurance. So this insurance premium, this is the corporation's insurance, it went up seven times. It went up from $66,000 up to four, over $430,000. And now we got to pay it. 
So that's what the residents are going to be asked to do. They're going to have to vote on special assessments, option A or option B. I would imagine the point you just made there is the point that every single owner or resident of Brookfield Estates will ask is, is this 100% a pass-along issue, that your insurance premiums hike as a corporation, you're going to make me pay it as an owner of a unit who already is obliged to carry personal insurance? So that would be my first question. Be interested if it's a 100% pass-along or exactly how it's being handled. Patty, and like I said, the main reason for my call was there's five streets involved in this. Um, um, Leicester Street, Outerbridge Street, one side, the, the west side of Steer Street, uh, Hickman Place and Bishop Place. And I wanted to reach out to those people and just let them know that it's a must for them to get to that meeting on Tuesday night at 7 o'clock at the Shriners Club in, on Topsville Road. We got to get some answers. It's not giving us any time to even get any legal advice or, you know, I mean, what, why was this increase, you know, raised seven times what the premium was last year? I, I, I can't understand it. Was there a claim made? Well, that's where the questions start for me, and I'm not an owner or resident uh, out there, but I'd like to know what the status of the claim was. If the increase from 54000 plus tax to 364 plus tax, 364000 plus plus tax, is all a 100% pass along, and if it is, it's as a result of what? So, you know, before you get into voting on option A or option B, it'd be nice if someone would be obliged to paint the picture of exactly what that raise entails, that increase entails, pardon me. So, yeah, if, the, if you're a resident who didn't get an email and you've heard this here now on the program, you can contact me. I can forward along a copy of it if you prefer. Now, it is at the Shrine Club at 530 Topsail Road. You have to come in at the entrance. That's off of Fairland Street there, Fairland Street East. You can join by Zoom if you're so inclined or unable to make your way to the Shriners Club. So please do uh, pay heed to Cindy's message here and get out to the meeting. Or if you want to and you can, just do it uh, online at home on Zoom. I can share that information with you as well. So if you need it and you don't have it in your inbox today or didn't know anything about it, contact me or Cindy or someone else, and I'll be happy to provide the info. But, uh, Patty, another thing, sure. like, you know, with the hard economic times that we're in now and all, the majority of these people are on fixed incomes, we're already going to come up with $455 a month. They're going to be forcing people maybe to lose their homes, Patty. Oh, it's it's a massive increase to have to deal with, no doubt. And even just the lump sum payment, which, you know, sometimes that comes across as a manageable issue as opposed to try and forecast a, a monthly increase. That's That's been stated, and it's a big one, uh, all the way up it to $445. But a one-time special assessment of 2600 is a big chunk of change. Yeah, and like I said, if you were to get a notice uh, from your insurance company tomorrow that your uh, automobile insurance went up seven times, I mean, you'd be gone off your head. Yeah, it's, of course I would. Like, do, the, the insurance companies just don't have to answer to anybody, I guess. I don't know. Well, I don't have a claim on my auto insurance, but uh, my premiums went up. And I know the reasons that I've been told why, but it doesn't make it sit any better in my belly. I appreciate yeah. this, Cindy. So, again, if you're a resident of Brookfield Estates and you need the info, just contact me, and I'll be happy to get, uh, share it with you. I, I really appreciate it, Patty. Thank you so much. Pleasure, Cindy. Let me know how it goes. I will tell Alrighty. after the meeting. Okay. Right. Bye. Bye-bye. Uh, let's keep rolling. Line number four is taking more to the province's consumer advocate. That's Dennis Brown. Dennis, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. I'm uh, calling to um, discuss um, 
the uh, the new business in uh, Newfoundland right now is, of course, uh, electric vehicles. And uh, the issue has arisen: who pays for the charging stations and the infrastructure to facilitate that business coming into the province? The utilities have put an application to the board to suggest that ratepayers should pay for the infrastructure costs. Uh, we oppose that, and initially the board has agreed with us on that. Uh, electric cars and the business associated with them has nothing to do with the provision of electricity going into people's homes. And why should ratepayers be on the hook for any of these charges? That's the issue. So at what cost and at whose cost should this new infrastructure be paid? Okay. So, you know, this is a built under the guise of if you build it, they will come. And whether or not anyone's interested in electric vehicle now or forevermore, that's kind of beside the point because some people are and the charging stations are requirements if people are going to consider buying one. Okay. So if it's not done the way it is now, how do you even craft creating that pot of money you know would it be at the dealer whereas opposed to simply a clerical fee i got to chip in on the creation or installation of more of these charging systems because i heard your point on this one and i get where you're coming from but how would it be done any other way because even if you just take it out of hydro and just do it as the provincial government as a form of encouraging encouragement just like they dangled money out there for moving from oil to electricity i don't even know how you go down this path in a different structure do you have any ideas it's not our issue, uh, Patty. Our issue is rates and how to keep rates affordable for ratepayers and at the lowest possible cost consistent with reliable service. That's all we're interested in. This is a fledgling business. Right now there's about 600 electric vehicles in the province. Comparatively, there are probably uh, in excess of 350,000 vehicles in the province. So just to give you an idea, there's, there's not uh, a lot of business there right now. Nope. If there was business or a business case to be made, private industry would move in and you'd get uh, the Irvings or Canadian Tire or, or whomever to, uh, to install these charging stations and uh, make money on it. So uh, it's not our job, it's not the job of ratepayers to get involved in this particular business. We have enough on our plates right now to pay for Muskrat Falls and uh, the costs that are associated with Muskrat Falls. Yeah, and we can, I'd like to get into that because there's lots on that uh, uh, particular place. Yeah, <laughs> that's another topic, but, uh, but yeah. But just to give you an idea, uh, the, uh, there are, in 2021, the board approved $1.5 million for 10 uh, electric vehicle charging stations. Uh, so, and uh, that's for Newfoundland Power. And then uh, they approved uh, six uh, electric vehicle charging stations on the island and three in, in Labrador for hydro at a cost of $1.6 million. So, uh, they did that at the time because the federal government was offering uh, grants to the utilities to do that. So once they did that, uh, the utilities came forward and said, uh, 
well, we're not interested in this business. Certainly, Newfoundland Power states they're not interested in it at all, but it's okay for the ratepayers to get involved in that. Well, uh, we've seen that picture played out before uh, in Muskrat Falls. Uh, they couldn't get any private industry to do Muskrat Falls, so they came up with the idea the island ratepayers would pay for it. Well, uh, the ratepayers uh, really are not stooges for the utilities. The ratepayers are entitled to low-cost electricity in the residences, consistent with reliable service. This is a business extraneous to these needs for ratepayers, and uh, it's up to uh, those who are involved with the business to come up with the answer. But the ratepayers are not the answer. In the world of consumer protection, uh, if you say, for instance, let's let the private sector evaluate whether or not there's a business case for more and more installation of more and more fast charging stations, at that point, are we not necessarily protecting consumer? Additional layer of involvement, and in this case for profit, won't that make it eventually more expensive than it need to be? Um. Newfoundland Power uh, makes the case that uh, once electric vehicles come in vogue for everyone, uh, uh, there will be uh, more money to go around. So uh, there could be an argument made to make electricity rates cheaper. Uh, I have yet to see the evidence uh, to suggest that that will ever be the case. There's also going to be some reference to some, and who knows what the federal government and what party will occupy the seat of power in the House of Commons. But there's all kinds of thoughts about more and more, whether it be tax breaks and or those types of incentives and or maybe grandfathering in internal combustion engines somewhere down the line. So at some point, it's going to probably be much like the infrastructure we saw governments pay for. at, you know, this will be very early stages because you're right, and there's no argument against the fact that there really isn't the critical mass of electric vehicles, although it is growing. Um, l- last one, and then I w- hopefully you can t- take a breather with us while we go to the news, come back and talk about some of the stories we've seen at Muskrat recently. Let's make let's make this might be flimsy argument, but I'll throw it out there for your reaction. <laughs> okay, I don't have a car. Why is any of my tax dollar going to uh, upkeep of roads? I don't have a kid in school. Why am I paying for schools? Well, these were being the public interest for the public good, uh, education and the education of children is in everyone's interest, and we need a uh, a transportation system on the island for everyone's good. But uh, why should someone who doesn't have an electric vehicle be, in fact, subsidizing by paying for the infrastructure that someone who has an electric vehicle needs. Why should ratepayers be subsidizing that? Ratepayers have their own vehicles to maintain and keep up and to fuel. So uh, right now, uh, uh, there's different levels of charging stations. You can get an hour charge for $15 in some of these, and you can get uh, charges for uh, uh, $1.50 in other charging stations. So it's a new business, but it's not a business that's going to make a lot of profit. It's only going to create cost, and uh, it's considerable risk to the ratepayers to uh, to indeed uh, get involved in this at all. So um, those who have electric vehicles, the companies promoting them, uh, require a meeting, I guess, with uh, the hydro companies to uh, determine how this is to be done. 
but uh, the ratepayers cannot be on the hook for any of these expenses. Dennis, do you have a moment to stay uh, on hold while we take a break for the news? Come back, talk a bit of muskrat? Sure. Thanks, that would be great. As a uh, consumer advocate, Dennis Brown, let's take a break for the newscast. When we come back, we'll return to our conversation with Dennis Brown and then Joan Penny on the west coast of the island talking about breast cancer support. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the show. Let's rejoin the province's consumer advocate, Dennis Brown, on line four. Dennis, you're back on the air. Okay, buddy. All right, here we go. So I don't know if we've even had a call on it, but it just gives me great consternation is the endless list, laundry list of problems plaguing the project, now knowing that three sections of the transmission lines have dropped to the ground in the recent past since I think it is mid-December. So it's not only access to repairs, but also knowing exactly what's causing these failures. Let's start with causing the failures. You know, references to the rigging device called the turnbuckle. You know, do you have any more information than we do? Because for me, if you add this to the pile of the Liberty, uh, Liberty Consulting reports, this is another big problem that may lead to prolonged blackouts or rolling brownouts. Uh, yes, I, I take your point, uh, Patty. Uh, I mean, when you look by comparator, if you go up to the Upper Churchill and the transmission network going through Quebec, you don't hear of any of these problems. And uh, the climate is more or less the same, although uh, for Muskrat Falls, there's 1,100 um, kilometers between uh, the generating station and Soldier's Pond on the island. So it's an extremely lengthy uh, transmission network. And, of course, the transmission network uh, is uh, – the the geographic boundaries uh, include the uh, long-range mountains. And uh, we were told from the beginning that if they get any kind of ice build up in the long-range mountains and a tower were to come down, but they talk towers – uh, then, uh, then it could take uh, months to access it and to uh, remedy the situation. So uh, now we're not even talking towers. We're talking uh, with uh, uh, the, uh, the 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 pieces of the uh, of the of the network which are which are uh, falling from uh, uh, f- f- falling to the ground uh, and. Uh, we saw on television uh, someone holding them up. I mean, it's really unbelievable. $13 billion has been spent on this project. Uh, but it comes down to the beginning uh, where uh, uh, there's a mad rush to do it. Uh, we had the the inquiry of Justice LeBlanc, and uh, we saw all the reasons why it should not have been done. Um, and uh, now we're seeing in reality what it should not have been done because we can't get electricity down from Muskrat Falls to the island consistently. And there seems to be no answer. The software is one problem, uh, which has yet to be alleviated, but there are other problems emerging daily. So uh, it uh, maybe it's a lemon. <laughs> maybe. Uh, yeah, and no lemon insurance available. Uh, very quickly, before I do have to go, 
Give us an idea of one tidbit of information regarding the 2041 committee's evaluations of what happens then and what negotiations will look like with the province of Quebec. We know they have a 35% stake of the Churchill, uh, Churchill Falls. We know that 15% of their power comes from Churchill Falls. They're talking about creating a plan B, which Premier Legault says building another dam. But what do you think is one little tidbit of info on 2041 that you don't think we've incorporated into the conversation? Because people will refer to it as the panacea. I'm not so sure that's true. No, it's certainly not a panacea. I think uh, someone uh, informed recently that uh, Hydro-Quebec from Muskrat Falls, or from Churchill Falls, I'm sorry, um, the profit they made last year was in the range of uh, $500 million. Um, That's my understanding. I stand to be corrected in that, but I reasonably believe it's uh, approximately correct. So... uh, We're not talking a panacea here. And right now, there's no contracts to be... uh, uh, No one is giving contracts in reference to to power contracts. The last power contract I think Hydro-Quebec got was with uh, one of the uh, American states. uh, That that was some years ago. Uh, So it's all open market. It's free market system. And... uh, it's not going to be the same. So we're going to be uh, into a contract where uh, where we have this open market system and it's going to be a, a difficult negotiations. However, uh, we both have reason to, to settle issues. Quebec needs the power. Uh, we have no other customer avail- available. They have the transmission network. Uh, we have the generation. So having these committees in place, and they were recommended by Justice LeBlanc. Actually, we made the recommendation because um, 2041 is within the 20-year range now, and power companies plan ahead for 20 years. So when you hear Premier Legault talking about uh, the Upper Churchill now and the contract, uh, he's dead on. They're into that 20-year period. And uh, it's good that uh, our government has started the process with the, with the committee, and we have uh, some uh, very uh, expert people on that committee. Uh, David Variety is there, uh, uh, Dr. James Fien and others. Uh, so, uh, uh, and I'm certain that uh, they uh, will uh, come up with ideas. Yeah, let's hope so. More information, and sooner the better, because 2041 sounds like a long way away, but in reality, it is absolutely not. I appreciate the time this morning, Dennis. Thank you. All the best, Patty. Same to you. Bye-bye. As uh, Dennis Brown, he's the province's consumer advocate. Let's take a break. When we come back, Joan is still there in the queue. We appreciate your patience, Joan. Talk about breast cancer support out on the west coast of the island. Dave wants to talk about hockey in Lancelou. Don't go away. And welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Joan. You're on the air. Hello. Hi, Joan. How are you? Very well. How about you? Good. Good. Fire away. What are we talking about? I'm Caller Patty. Oh, welcome to the show. And uh, I I love to talk, and I don't mind talking, but uh, I hate going on the radio because sometimes they ask you questions that you're not really prepared for, but I thought, okay, it's time to call Patty Dale and get involved. Joan, if I ask you anything that you're not prepared for, you simply say pass. Okay. Okay, let's go. All right. Uh, We're celebrating our 15th anniversary this Thursday at Jennifer's on Broadway in Cornerbrook. Yep. And I started a cancer support group back then because I saw a need for a breast cancer support group in Cornerbrook. I used to go to the other support group that Agnes used to run, and Agnes is a wonderful lady. 
But I saw that I needed to start my own group because uh, there was private issues with breast cancer that we needed to talk about and we didn't want any men around. So I'm having a male cancer survivor coming to our uh, luncheon on Thursday, January the 26th at 1230, and he's going to be my guest speaker. Now, there's not many male breast cancer survivors in Newfoundland, and this guy lives on the West Coast, and he's going to come as a guest speaker, and he's a wonderful guy. So uh, I have two other coordinators, Shirley and Berdina, that uh, does breast cancer support group with me. And uh, we used to advertise in the Western Star here on the West Coast one time, because we lost that. And the West Coast is losing everything, Patty. It really makes me angry. Uh, I called the cancer office last week, and they're not open the cancer office in Cornerbrook anymore. I have uh, prostheses and bras here that people give me, and I don't want to send them to St. John's because people need them here on the West Coast and they can't afford them, and I don't want to turn my house into a storage room. But the cancer office apparently has three people left in their cancer office in St. John's, and they have no intentions of opening their cancer office in Cornerbrook. I just found out about that last week, so I'm going to get Eddie Joyce on the ball about that after I finish my re- mini-retreat this week. So because at Breast Friends, we discuss things about mental paths or mental paths, whatever you want to call it. We don't have men come to our group because they don't want to hear about hot flashes and all the women's stuff. So uh, I'm really excited to... Uh, our group has been going for 15 years, the last two years of meeting on Zoom. On Zoom, it's sort of turning into a bit of a a social thing. So we're going back into the community. We're going to have our meetings on the last Thursday of every month at uh, the Kinsman Club on St. Mark's Avenue. So usually we have 10 to 12 people at our meetings. But we open this up to all breast cancer survivors in Cornerbrook, and we have people coming from Stephenville, Deer Lake, Hawks Bay, and even Port of Bass. So I'm turning this into a mini-retreat for the West Coast, and I'm so excited because a lot of our local businesses in Cornerbrook um, have gave us, like, a lot of prizes and sponsors to take to that meeting. And, uh, like, there's one acupuncturist here, um, massage therapist here in Cornerbrook, Danny Griffin, that actually gave me 30 free acupunctures to give out to my people that's coming to the thing. And right now, uh, we were expecting about 15 to 20 people. And we have 34 already now that accepted, that had called and said that they would be coming to our luncheon. So I wanted to get on the talk show and and let anyone know that who is a breast cancer survivor on the West Coast, because we're doing this this Thursday, and I have to let Jennifer's know by tomorrow, actually, if they would like to come to a luncheon and and hear some experiences and uh, uh, about the last years of breast cancer and everybody got a story and uh, when you first start off your story is long and as your years go by you sort of forget about your uh, experiences and you you know uh, like I can say I'm a 17 year survivor and I had chemotherapy I had a Herceptin and I had tamoxifen and all the other treatments that everyone else has and now I feel pretty good so and we have people in our group that's a 59 year survivor and that certainly gives you a lot of hope when you see people that survive for that long 
What so, do you get out of it yourself, Joan? Because oh my, don't go talking, my son. Why not? I worked in the hospital in Cornerbrook, and I worked as an LPN, and I worked in recreation, then I worked in the lab. And I started this cancer support group because I've been a volunteer since I've been a teenager. And I started this support group because when I did get breast cancer, I met with some people for luncheons and stuff, and they helped me a lot, and there was no breast cancer support group. So I thought I would start a breast cancer support group to help people. And I have helped a lot of people in a lot of different ways, and so have the other people in my group. But I've got, like, I've been involved in a lot of volunteer things over life, but breast cancer support group is my passion. And I've got uh, I've got so much warmth out of that, Patty. Like, we've, we've lost people, obviously. We've had about probably 12 or 15 of our breast friends that died. And we went to their funerals, and we've had honor guards, and we've talked with the families, and they know how much their families got in a support group. And, you know, it's really hard to, uh, when you get diagnosed with breast cancer, it's really hard to talk to your husband and your children about breast cancer. And the experience that you're sharing sometimes, like people would come to breast cancer and they would say, uh, you know, they're depressed, they don't know what's doing, they're crying, their husband thinks they're cracking up. It's all the side effects from all the drugs that you have, Patty. And once they know that, you know, when they come there, they're not alone. And sometimes when they come there, like, <clears throat> they cry or they uh, don't talk. They just sit there and cry. Sometimes they can't even say their name. And then I've had another few people come. When they came to the breast cancer support group, they were that negative, but they've turned around like a 360 turnaround, and now they're like different people. And not everybody comes all the time. And that's not what a breast cancer support group is about. You come to get what you need, and then you move on. Like, if I had to have people in my group that, like, I've had about 200 breast friends in my group since I started. I mean, where would I get a room to fit 200 people in? <laughs> like, it, it's amazing what, what uh, the breast cancer support group does for each other. I know it's be true. I mean, I've had many conversations with Agnes and other people who have attended yeah. this support group and, of course, the many others that are out there. This one's specific to breast cancer. Just for my understanding, as a man and my wife's husband, you say it's not a conversation you want to have with your sons or your husband. Why not? Well, I'll tell you why, because your husband only wants to know the good things about you, not the bad things about you. Oh, my God. I mean, come on now, Patty. Be serious. Okay. I mean, uh, when uh, my, my husband is very private and very shy. Obviously, you know I'm not private and shy. Or I wouldn't be talking to you. But anyway, uh, when I started the group and the Western Star came here to take a picture of me to put in the Western Star, after they left my husband, this is what he said to me. He said, do you really want everybody in Cornerbrook to know that you got breast cancer? I don't really care who knows that I have breast cancer, Patty. I just sure. want to help other people get through it. But my husband wouldn't be able to do that because he's just too shy to do it. But that's okay. But when I got diagnosed with breast cancer, uh, when I went out to meet with my breast cancer people at Glenmalin had breakfast, and they would call here for me. Now, usually when my phone rings, my husband says, oh, not that again. And when then people would call, he would come in the room and he'd say, you're one on the phone, and you could tell the faces lit up because when I would come home and share the stories with him, about what we talked about and stuff about other people. Like, he's amazed, and he's amazed how much time I've spent on the phone talking to breast cancer survivors. And one time I had a, my cousin's wife had uh, breast cancer. But, you know, the men go through a lot, too. Like, if your wife got breast cancer tomorrow, like, she's the breast cancer survivor, and you be the caretaker. 
And I tell you, over the years, you heard people say, it's harder to be the caretaker than the uh, person. And I tell you, that's true, because I would have cancer again any time than rather for my husband or my kids to have it, because I know that it was hard for me going through breast cancer. But I, uh, I survived, and I'm a 17-year survivor, and I'm doing great. And, you know, I had another surgery last year, uh, that it was bowel cancer, but they got all that too. And then I'm like Agnes. I also had another spot removed from my back that was uh, basal carcinoma, but they got all that. So, you know, I'm a three-time survivor too. And I started a breast cancer support group, and it's only open to breast cancer. I really wanted to open it to ovarian cancer too because they have their own issues. But I can't start a support group about something that I didn't walk the line. Totally get it. And you know, every husband, every man would be different in how they react to a variety of things in the home. So, uh, fair enough. And I mean, and you're... I'm going to tell you another story. Now, you're not going to believe this. Okay. I met with a woman one time, and she was a breast cancer survivor, and she had her breasts off, and her husband left her because of that. And he was a businessman, and he only had the one son. And she came and talked to me about getting breast reconstruction, because she thinks if she had had breast reconstruction, that he wouldn't have left her. And I assured her that when people get breast reconstruction, it's not for your husband, it's not for your friend, it's for yourself. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, I didn't tell her, but I felt like saying to her, you know, your husband is an idiot. And one time they got, and he said to her, well, you only got a half, you're only half a woman, you only got one tit. Like, what a thing for a husband to say to a woman. Like, I mean, and I wanted to say to her, my son, that's like... I'm so glad that he's remarried to someone else because you've got a comfortable life now and someone else got that bitch for a husband. Like, it's terrible. Yeah, you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, but that that's only speaks to that person's lack of character and absence of love. Well, obviously, yes. I, yes, I would think that most people, uh, certainly everyone I know in my social sphere, mm-hmm. uh, whenever the husband or the wife has had these types of personal medical issues in particular, that yeah. I've never heard such an awful story that you tell. But, of course, I'm sure it happens. And well, I've been at breast cancer retreats in St. John's, okay. and I tell you, like we've had like uh, lots of people there speak to us that are breast cancer survivors, as you know, as motivational speakers. And uh, what's her name, Joan, uh, the MP for Labrador? What's her name? Yvonne Jones. Yvonne Jones. She was there. She spoke about her experiences, and like we all have a story. But you know what? Our story is important to our family, and. Uh, uh, when I went to St. John's to go to the oncologist, I made my husband go with me because I wouldn't be able to tell him after what happened. My daughter, I made her come with me. She was going to go on to class. And no, you're not. You're coming with us too. And driving back from St. John's, I was crying all the way. And I said to my husband, you know what? You have to phone our son tonight and tell him because I can't tell him that. And he did phone in and tell him what I was going to go through and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, uh, I got through it, like, and, and it was hard. I'm not going to pretend that it wasn't hard because it was hard. But when you meet other people as survivors and you can share your stories with it, like, it's amazing what you get out of it. Joan, before I go to the news, uh, what do people need to do if they want to contact you so that you can uh, contact Jenny's, I think it is? Is that the place you're having the meeting? No, I will contact Jennifer's, but yeah, uh, Agnes got on the other day, and Agnes did a great job, and I appreciate what she did because I never, ever called the talk show because I... I uh, you just I, don't know. I, I just don't like being on the radio anyway, and I have a loud voice, and, you know, uh, I don't want, anyway, I just didn't want to do that. And Cornerbrook is a small place, but we have about 34 people coming so far on Thursday, and I just wanted to get on and let people know that if you're sitting at home, and we're having at 1230 because we have people coming from Hawks Bay, 
Portabass, Stephenville, and Deer Lake, and they can get here in a couple hours and they can drive home in the daylight if they want to come. And uh, if you're sitting home and you're thinking, maybe I should go, maybe I met a girl the other day and she said, well, she don't really have anything to offer. Well, you know what? You'd be surprised what you have to offer and what you could learn. And we have guest speakers come at different times. And uh, so I thought I'd turn this into a mini retreat, which is going to be a mini retreat. I have lots of um, advertising uh, prizes from local businesses on the West Coast. And uh, I know it's going to be a great day. And it's starting at 1230. I'm thinking we're going to be finished around 3. But if anybody wants to sit around and talk, I can stay till 10 o'clock the night if they need to. Because when we go to our breast cancer support groups, that's what it's all about. I usually have the meeting for an hour, then we have a social, and uh, they can stay there till 10 o'clock if they want to, but like our meeting is enough for anybody. And usually when there's a new person that comes, we dwell on them because sometimes after a while, your group can get into a social group, but I always try to guide it back to bring somebody to speak or have interesting things to share with. And uh, now that we can't get to the re- to the breast cancer conferences in St. John's, which they have one this year, okay. and I know it's very expensive to put out those retreats, like it's anywhere from eighty to a hundred thousand dollars. There was no bus this year. The first one they had in two years. It was the twentieth twentieth anniversary or the twenty first. Uh, they put it from Friday noon to Sunday noon. Well, if you're going from Cornerbrook, you got to leave Thursday, so you got an extra night in the hotel. Right. If they finish at Sunday oh, noon, oh. you got to stay an extra night, or you're going to drive the highways in the dark, and there's too many moose on the highway. And some of us aren't well enough to drive nine hours out to St. John's, so when there was a bus, you sit aboard the bus, and you laugh and talk, and then you get there. But now, and I understand that. But anyway, hopefully we'll have, you know, we used to have it on the West Coast, Gander, and... Okay. Uh, all I wanted to say is before I'm uh, even later getting to the news, what's your number? So that if someone wants to register with you okay. so you can give out the prep. Go ahead. Joan at 785-7465. 785-7465. And well, thank you, Patty. I thank you for this time. Uh, happy to do it, Joan. And let me tell you, as a professional radio broadcaster, you're not afraid of the radio. <laughs> Listen, I might call you next month for advertising for our meeting. How's Sounds that? good. All right. See you, Joan. Thank you. Good luck. All right, there you go. Prescott's support on the West Coast. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we're hitting the ice on Lancelou. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number two. Dave, you're on the air. Good morning. Great show going once again there, buddy. Thanks, Dave. Uh, this is uh, David Jones. I'm sorry I'm, not, I'm a little bit horsed up, but I just got back from a super-duper hockey tournament this weekend in Lancelou, Labrador, at the uh, Straits, uh, Labrador Straits Arena in Lancelou. And let me tell you... I got two very good stories for you this morning, Patty. Let's hear them. Well, first, I, I don't know for sure if I should start with uh, the singing of Old Canada by this little girl. Uh, not quite sure her age, uh, somewhere between 10 and 12. And between a hockey announcer uh, who's currently in uh, grade 10, I believe, he's first time ever doing hockey on radio like you know like uh, doing the play-by-play yes not easy to do and uh, singing all canada or doing play-by-play so what tournament was this dave uh this was the uh, uh the wolves lancelot wolves what really lancelot wolf we're talking about uh, from lanceclair to uh, uh you know the three town four and Lan- and lancelot all put together 
uh, with hockey players uh, that are married or whatever uh, lives into the region of Lancelot and uh, this was played at the uh, Straits uh, uh, Arena Labrador Straits Arena recently been done over a lot of voluntary work went in there for this tournament and stuff like that to get the building ready and they did a super duper job buddy what a weekend yeah, I've been up uh, to that particular arena in Straits Minor Hockey for an all-Newfoundland one time with one of my boys. So this is the annual adult tournament, is it? Well, yeah, we're going to say annual, uh, Patty, but, you know, we all know that two years was lost because of the oh, pandemic. Okay, right. It really was three, you know what I mean? But, uh, yeah, that's the, the – they normally will have a, a – well, for sure, they're going to have one every year now. That I can guarantee you. They got teams. They had teams all the way from the lower North Shore, Quebec. They had a native team there from Pakwishippi, uh, a team put together from uh, St. Augustine, which is, uh, uh, you know, the road only goes up so far. It goes up to a little village called Old Fort on the 138. And uh, and then the, the remaining is on Skidoo, on Snow Machine, and we know what kind of year we're having, and so it makes it a little bit rough and tough. But uh, the weekend, all in all, went over with uh, 100% good. Uh, young Brendan Odell uh, was picked uh, among a lot of other people to do uh, some live play-by-play hockey there for uh, a little radio station up in Blanc de Blanc. Well, that's also on the Quebec border, the CFBS. And uh, as I said earlier, this is the first time. And uh, let me tell you, the young fellow knows what he's doing. I'm glad to hear it. You know, it's a bit of fun, too. Uh, there's always been a bit of the social aspect on top of the hockey itself, and whether it be the young lady who sang the national anthem and a young fellow with his uh, first escapade as a play-by-play guy, I think it's great. Who won the tournament, Dave? Well, the B trophy went to the hometown Wolves. Uh, they beat out uh, another team from the uh, Lower North Shore, Quebec, uh, the uh, uh, St. Bon Esperance Kings. And the A trophy went to uh, uh, up in Blanc's Blanc. The team was called the Storm. And uh, the, the, to me, the highlight was just before the puck was dropped. Uh, uh, little Lily uh, Utson. She's about 10, 12 years old. Give, I, that's as much I gave her. And you should have heard the whole Canada sing the way that she sang it. Sounds great to me. I'm glad you had a good time. And I know they missed a couple of years through the pandemic, but there's been an adult tournament in Lancelou for quite a long time. It sounds like it was a roaring success this time around. Well, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be great to see the communities all coming back together again after all this time. And a note, a note to uh, your, uh, the previous caller that was talking about uh, uh, getting your, uh, the breast cancer survivors group together. And uh, I think that would be a wonderful place to be, yes, for sure, because uh, uh, I myself am a, uh, a survivor and I got a couple of stories also. Well, Dave, I'm glad you made time to share your hockey stories with us. You're always welcome on the show. Thanks a lot. Thank you, and have a nice day. Same to you, Dave. All the best. Okay, bye-bye. There we go. Final break of the morning. When we come back, Dave has concerns with automated phone services. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number one, Dave, you're on the air. Is that me, Mr. Daly? That would be you. Okay. What I was talking about earlier is, like, 
like we're senior citizens, automated services. Like you got to press this number, you got to press that number. Like, why don't they have somebody for senior citizens to come on the line to talk to somebody? And if we know what we're talking about. Yeah, you know, I don't even really know. Consider the, a couple of things. So there's more people working for the government now than ever before in our history. But gone are the days at the exact same time where I could call a number and have a good chance to speak with a live person on the other end. But that seems to be almost... On, it's not available to anybody at any point anymore. I get frustrated with automated phone service too, you know. i got to yeah, uh, select my language, then i got to wait. And then it's how long I have to wait or leave a message and wait forever in a day to get a call back. I'm not sure why it's as difficult as it is these days. But because I don't understand it. Like, if I call Solby's or Walmart or anybody, like, why does it take so long to get back to you? And, and sometimes they never get back to you. Like, I call the government, and I, I'm asking about my old age pension or something like that, and you never get a phone call back. No, you can be waiting an awful long time. You know, people will wonder whether or not this has grown I'll call it worse since the beginning of the pandemic, whether it be in certain provinces or at the federal government level, just kind of getting back into the office now versus yeah. what we were used to prior to, uh, I guess, March of last year when we're, or of 2020 when we're talking about this province. But, you know, if the phone service was effective, and for instance, you know, I don't mind calling a, a company or an organization where they tell me your wait time is predicted to be X. Or they tell me that I can get a call back at my convenience and I can leave that particular message or hit that particular prompt. That stuff I have no real issue with. It's the not knowing. It's, you know, if you tell me my, my call is important to you, well, I don't necessarily believe it until I get some help. <laughs> that, that's true. And which, like they said, told me it was seven minute wait and I was on the phone for 45 minutes. Yeah. So somebody's not telling the truth here. I mean, like, we're senior citizens, like, you know, why do we have to put up with this? You know, understand what I'm trying to say? I, I can't explain myself properly, but, like, I listen to your show every day, and I don't agree with half of what the people say, and don't disrespect it. Like, they says alcohol causes cancer. You know, like, I don't believe all that, right? Well, there's there's a matter of opinion, then there's a matter of fact. I mean, I, and plus, I haven't really been talking about that on this program, to be honest with you. No, I'm sorry. Yeah, No, don't but, be sorry. Like, it doesn't matter. They said, they said a few years ago, coffee causes cancer. This causes cancer. That causes cancer. So what's cancer? Cancer is a problem. You're, you're born with it, aren't you, sir? Ah, no, there could be all kinds of contributing factors to uh, cancer. Of course there can. Yes, we're all born with a cell in our body that says we got cancer. Yeah, and when people talk about alcohol or anything else, they talk about what the additional risk may be. Not that if you yeah. have a few drinks that all of a sudden cancer is automatic, because we know that's not true, but they're just talking no. about what the risks would be. So people well, and people will assess their own risk and do as they yeah. see fit, I suppose. Yeah, and I understand that now, but sometimes, like, when you're listening to the radio, it's hard to hear, and then you just try to learn more stuff, more stuff day by day, right? 
Yeah, there's a lot of stuff on the go. <laughs> you're, you're a smart man. I don't know if I am or not, but I know there's a lot bouncing around my poor old head. <laughs> poor old soul. <laughs> That's it, Dave. Appreciate the time, sir. Listen, was there anything in particular that you were trying to get some satisfaction from government, or is it just the whole yeah, concept? I want I want them to turn around and look at after senior citizens. Give us a phone call. Give us a phone number that we can call so we can contact somebody. And 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 it's 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 like every time you call somebody, you got to press this number, press sure. that number. We're it. not good on we're not good on the phone, right? You seem pretty handy, but of course you didn't have to press any buttons. Just wait for me to press your button. Uh, oh, you're 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 automatic on my phone. <laughs> I'll take it. Uh, Dave, thanks for the time, sir. I appreciate your uh, uh, making time for the program on this one this morning. Yes, Patty. It was nice to talk to you. I was going to call you George McLaren. <laughs> There's a blast from the past. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. And Bill Rowe and all them. Sure. But it was nice to talk to you, sir. Good to have you on. Thank you for helping me. My pleasure, Dave. Take care. Thank, thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Uh, all right, let's go line three. Eugene, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning. Thank you. Thank you to you and your producer, David, and VOCM for giving me the chance to get on and voice another concern. Uh, Patty, my concern today as a citizen of Fogo Island is, uh, as you know, and you mentioned Fogo Island quite often, actually, and that's appreciated. Uh, uh, first of all, we don't have a full-time doctor, which is tragedy. Uh, now we have the road ambulance on strike, which is also a tragedy, of course. Uh, uh, I'm not saying anything bad about the road ambulance and, uh, and the operator, Patty, because I've never aired a complaint about them, and, uh, and I'm sure they're doing a wonderful job. Patty, as you know, in the past, I complained as a, the chair of the Air Ambulance Medical Transport Group, why we don't operate the air ambulance more from Fogo Island. From what I can see, there was one flight out of there last year. Now, we're on an island. When you got flights leaving Botwood, you got flights leaving Clarenville, that's connected by road. I've been hearing that uh, it's time-consuming, which got to be false, because why would it be any more time-consuming for Fogo Island than anywhere else? So it, that got to be wrong. Uh, today, as you know, they're going to vote on making these that operator out there on Fogo Island and other parts of the island. Uh, essential. That's long overdue. Hope that'll get through so that they can get back on the job. Uh, Patty, uh, I would, I've been asking before, uh, and I'll ask in again, and, and hopefully that the, the government uh, ears are open. Uh, the Minister of Transportation and his department, the Minister of Health and his department, please look into why air ambulance is not used more for Fogo Island on an island stuck out there in the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, Patty, what do you have to say about all that? Well, you and I have had that conversation, I don't know, a lot, many, many times over the years. I've never seen anybody produce what would be, and not uh, anybody, the government produce what would be a cost-benefit analysis. I mean, benefits, some of them would be emotional and based on time frame and wait time. But even in the whole world of cost-benefits, it would be nice to see just some sort of analysis so government can say, well, here's why we're not doing X, Y, or Z. And so whether it be with having to incorporate EVIS versus the uh, public sector offering, I don't know. But I've never seen a thorough analysis that can give me any more information versus the fact that folks on Fogo Wild would like to have it. 
That's that's a good point, Paddy. Uh, and costs, like you're saying, it could be. But, I mean, the cost per kilometre, and I've checked into this, to fly to Fogwell would be the same to fly to Botwood or to Clarenville or to Stephenville or anywhere else. So that wouldn't, be, that wouldn't fly with me or, or any, any, anybody that, that wants this done. <laughs> so, Paddy, it's a big concern. And uh, right now, hopefully, these uh, workers can get back uh, with, the, with the road ambulance. But air ambulance should be used, especially at this time, and it's not being used. And these two departments that I mentioned, or any MP or MHA that's out there that got the concerns about Fogwall and the citizens, should speak up for us. Absolutely, and they're always welcome here on the program. And knowing that it's the first time in literally centuries where there has not been a family doctor on Fogo Island is really quite something when you think about it out loud. Well, Paddy, it's cruel. You're out there, you know, and 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 like I say, I live in Deep Bay Fogwall, and you know, you're there, you know, there's no family doctor. And, and there could be look, over 60 kilometers of wind, then you probably wouldn't have a ferry. And, and it's devastating. And people are leaving because of it. So we have to get have our MPs, our MHAs, speak up for us. And like I said, these two departments can make a difference. And if they hear Amish use more, they should look into it and make sure it's done. Appreciate Thank the time. You, Thanks, Eugene. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Yeah, no, it is really difficult. And, you know, when I said it out loud, I heard what I was saying. And cost and benefit when we're talking about healthcare can sound very callous when of course that's not the intention is because I mean we can boil it down to patient experience and bedside manner and positive healthcare outcomes and wait times and all the rest of it at some point during all of these types of health related conversations there will always be unfortunately a room for conversation about value for money spent how we spend it what the outcomes would be so that's kind of what I mean about that, because there's always going to be, and so there should be, uh, a distinct focus on the human side, the human element of healthcare, access to, proximity to, and whether or not we're getting what we would hope in our universal healthcare system. Anyway, uh, I don't know what the outcome was of the emergency debate regarding putting the private operators in the ambulance service in under the essential service legislation versus simply being managed by the Labor Relations Act, but that's certainly something we can pick up tomorrow morning. When we pick up this conversation on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line, on behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.